On today's show, I'm going to be talking with C.J. Wally, and he's something of a, I guess if you're a screenwriter, he is the man that defies the odds. He is in production, or actually post-production, probably on the verge of releasing uh, a movie that he wrote and actually had a hand in the production, went from his home in Stoke-on-Trent in England and came out to California and got the the full Hollywood treatment. But he's also before that been very active on social media. I first became familiar with him on the site Stage 32. He has since developed his own site called Script Revolution, which is saying, hey, stop charging broke screenwriters all this money for posting their screen scripts online. And he even has a production company called Rebel Rouser. So welcome to the show, CJ. Thank you for having me, Kelly. I am so happy to be here. I feel at home, man. I feel at home here. What a pleasure. Well, you're welcome. And it's just so fun to talk with somebody with an English accent. That's the first time I've heard that. You know, I have a Stoke-on-Trent accent, which um, in in the tiers of English accents is somewhere above Scouser. So (laughs) I I, I love that you Americans like it. (laughs) Well, I did my research, and and Stoke-on-Trent, if I'm correct, is in the county of Staffordshire. It's correct. It sounds it sounds pretty um, pretty remarkable, doesn't it? Staffordshire. It's a nice sounding thing. Yeah, we're famous for making pottery. We're, we're the Titanic, the captain of the Titanic is from Stoke on Trent. Um, the guy who invented the Spitfire warplane is from Stoke on Trent. Um, so you know, we're doing little bits of Bob Slash from Guns and Roses, Lebby from uh, Motorhead. Oh wow, mm. that's good oh, stuff. Yeah. We're doing our best here. Well, no wonder that they just bred a an exploitation action film screenwriter. That sounds like what else could have you ended up, especially with the Lemmy, like um, and all the the pictures of your screenplays and break even posters. I just I can imagine like a kick ass Motorhead soundtrack fueling your work. Ooh. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely, dude. Absolutely. I mean, it was inevitable, really. I think you're right to to churn, to turn a screenwriter out somehow, um, in, in a world where you would be lucky to bump into anyone who's ever made a movie or written a script. Well, I'm going to put a little format on us here. Um, we're going to talk about Break Even, which is kind of your breakout you know, movie and project. But before that, I I really want to start with your whole, you know, script writing uh, history and how, you know, you created Script Revolution, because I just want people out there to know what it's like out there to write spec scripts, especially in 2020, and how, you know, you really have defied the odds. There's so many people doing this and so many people never get to see their work produced. You know, you have, and it sounds like this is going to be the start of many more produced scripts. But I just want you to give us first a little, you know, not a complete bio, but, you know, what were you doing before you created Script Revolution? And what was it like for you as a writer starting out thinking, you know, will anyone notice me, you know, much less even produce my script? Yeah, I, I mean, I got into this in 2012, so I, it's 
you know, I was 32, quite a late age to decide that you suddenly want to become a writer. I hadn't done any fiction writing prior. Um, I had a, a life crisis. I had a, a, you know, I had a full mental breakdown in, in my life and turned to writing. And I got in just as sites like The Blacklist were launching. And I watched things change radically for the average screenwriter who went from a world where you would query for free and you would network um and then suddenly this culture developed where you now probably should go and buy an evaluation and pay for your script to be hosted somewhere and live or die based on like an average score from from a reader somewhere you don't even know who that reader is and that sent me personally to a very dark place and i watched a lot of other people end up in a very dark place um you know as you know writing is hard enough writing on spec is so it takes so much out of you there's there's nothing else like it writing screenplays is so bizarre because you don't go direct to an audience so you're desperately craving validation and and every single read just feels like it, it it's, it's either going to make you or break you so i watched people's journeys i watched them get broken by that just this feeling of hopelessness and, and desperation and for years i just kept thinking someone needs to just come along and create a free site where you can put your your, your screenplay on there and at least you've got something happening in the background something hope light at the end of the tunnel and i knew i could kind of do it i had a little bit of web development experience but i was like please just don't don't let it be me don't let it be me i don't want to do it i don't want the stress i don't want to take all that on on top of everything else well 2016 4th of july i'm thinking about the american revolution this name comes into my head script revolution and for some crazy reason i just think i'm gonna do it i've, I've had enough i'm gonna do it i'm just i'm I hate watching all these people lose their money, lose their hope, lose their self-belief because of these gatekeeping systems that are now starting to, to, to clone and duplicate and come up in other areas. So I sat down and it sounds really corny and really cheesy. And if I wrote it in a movie, you'd never believe it. But I literally sat down and worked out how to do it, worked out the programming, worked out all the technical stuff. And by August the 1st, boom, I, I launched Script Revolution. And we're now four years in, nearly 8,000 members, over 125,000 downloads. And I just keep chipping away at it, keep mm -hmm. doing little bits and bobs. Mm -hmm. Well, let me interject here a little bit, because I mm -hmm. kind of knew this existed. Like I said, you know, I saw your presence on stage 32. This was years ago. Yeah. I think it's because you were a very frequent commenter on other people's things. And then you also became, you know, a, a guest blogger and wrote your own articles. So you really, I think, out of anyone I saw on there, actually had a really high profile just for someone who started out from scratch on there. And I think that's a, a lot of what I admire about you is you are someone who I, I think... And I'm trying to say the tactful way to say this. Um, I think a writer can go to a site like Stage 32 or even like a, a, a group on Facebook, like a screenwriters group or something. And you can 
feel like you're being productive. Like, oh, yes. I'm networking. You know, oh, yes, I'm going to, you know, I'm getting feedback or, oh, I'm making, you know, contacts. And there's a limit to that. You know, at, at some point, you know, the honest writer thinks, well, am I, am I doing that to make a contact or do I just not want to write today? And it, and it seems like you balance that out and have used your time on social media to, you know, make a name for yourself, but not at the expense of writing. And don't you think that's kind of one of the hard things or even, you know, why someone might even pay for a script site other than yours, because it, it makes them feel like they've done something productive, but it's easier than writing. Like writing is always the hardest part of this equation. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's this bizarre thing. Like I, I do believe all writers should feel an urgency to write. And I think that if anyone who finds they can't write or, or really, really don't want to do that. And something's wrong in the process. Something They're doing something wrong. Something's falling apart. But yes, um, a lot of screenwriting platforms are a place to go and procrastinate. And I, I wish more people put that writing energy that they have to that they're putting into comments go out and blog you've blogged for stage 32 stage 32 is a, a fantastic yes. platform for recognizing people who are i was i was censored i was censored in my blog but well, that's neither here nor there no it was no i think um it was done very politely <laughs> it does it does happen but you I, know I, 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 I think i used a, a a word for um someone's anatomy and they kind of used more of a euphemism <laughs> but anyway we digress please go on yeah I, yeah you know stage three two gets a bad rap um out there and i don't know why because I, I don't think it's, it's, it's oh i like them i think any, i i yeah. love what they've done yeah, and I'm really, I'm really close with with RB and Amanda and various other members of the team. And when I actually went out to LA, I visited the Stage City Two headquarters. It was like a pilgrimage for me to go see them. And I and I go to Raindance each year to to meet up with them there as well, go out for drinks and and whatever. So it's always been a fantastic experience. And I feel that those of us that got in with Stage Thirty Two back in kind of 2012, 2013, it was an excellent opportunity to stand out. I think they were really looking at out there for people that believed in the platform and had something valuable to say. And they've mm -hmm. nurtured that well. The blog on Stage Thirty Two is so valuable. Um, and that was great. That really gave me a lot of confidence because I came to stage 32 a broken man. I My experience before that was Done Deal Pro. And on Done Deal Pro, someone on there had convinced me because I'd never got an eight on the blacklist and because I'd never got past a quarterfinals in a competition that I, I didn't have what it takes. And that destroyed me. And I ended up going to stage 32 to basically share what I knew, but I'd written myself off in the process. Well, here's the thing. When people are writing spec scripts and they're, you know, putting it on blacklist and all this, they're bypassing the traditional way and that is, you know, getting an agent, trying to make a relationship with an established production company. And one thing people have to remember is that's still a valid way too. There are working writers who are not posting spec scripts up there on these sites. Yes. And I think a lot of new people think, you know, posting on these sites is the only way. There still is the traditional way. There is still networking that doesn't take place on a public forum. It's harder that way, 
you know, it's harder to make those contacts. And I think a lot of people have to realize there are these different ways and you, you know, you are the exception, but I think a lot of these people don't realize that if they want to be an indie spec writer, they're wearing many hats that would traditionally, you know, be like not just writer, but also agent. And I think a lot of people forget that an aggressive agent working for you is a really good asset to have. And a lot of writers, their skill set might be the creative writing. It may not be the more aggressive business person. That that's true. I I do think that every every writer out there really needs to look at themselves and think about who they are and where their skills lie and how that's going to apply itself to the marketplace. They have to understand the fundamentals of the business itself and this is one of the biggest problems i see people do not appreciate how the business operates and it's not difficult to learn that you can read the history books you can read about your heroes you can read the, the blogs and articles by screenwriters and you'll pick up the basics of that what frustrates me is how many people want a silver bullet so they want to know What's the one thing I can do? Where's the one site I join? What's the one competition I win? And I keep trying to tell people, you have to do everything you can. You have to cover every single marketing channel you possibly can um, and be smart with your money. Um, because if you try to take the easy way and look for those magic bullets, there's a million and one people who are just going to keep taking 45, 50, 60 dollars from you every other month for another roll of the dice. And you don't want to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to quote you. This is from your website, mm -hmm. cjwally.com. That's Wally with an E, E-Y. And I think this is so important is to make yourself distinguishable and and to let people know like right off the bat this is the genre i write in i think one of the things that kills a lot of um screenwriters you see them post on one of these public forums 10 scripts where every script is a different genre mm -hmm. and i'm thinking okay you know we we can write in more than one genre but at the same time you know we, uh, a production company would probably want to buy from the specialists, you know, someone that just does horror or just does, you know, screwball comedy. And on your site, I think it's really easy to figure out who you are. And I'm going to quote maybe one or two paragraphs. Here we go. You go, yo, that's how you greet your fans. Yo, <laughs> I like that. I'm here for the gritty movies, the rebellious movies. Those films that pack a punch far harder than their budgets would suggest. And then in the second paragraph, this is where you get real specific. You go on to say, as a spec script writer, I love to create pulpy thrillers, mostly with female leads that feature strong themes, hard action, witty dialogue, and twisting scenes that have characters vying for power or falling for one another. See, I can picture that already. And if I was a producer, I would either say, yeah, that's perfect for us, or no, we just do light romantic comedies. You know, best of luck to CJ. Mm. But a lot of people are not that direct as saying who they are as a writer. Yeah, th that's so true. I think there's a lot of people pleasing that goes on out there. And a lot of people that try to 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 hedge their bets and 
you, you have to be very you have to be very careful about generically generically marketing yourself because you can send out a very confused message but more important like that more importantly than that on an artistic level on a personal fulfillment level you really have to think about what you don't want to do and you don't want to get dragged into doing you know firstly i spent you know five or six years saying no to a lot of people or saying not now to a lot of people because those projects weren't right because I knew that those movies were never going to get made or I knew I was never going to get paid I said no a lot to a lot of people but now in the position I'm in um, as a working writer is I have to say no to doing writing work that I know I'm not going to enjoy because it's within a genre that I just don't want to be known for um, I don't feel motivated for that would be doing the client a disservice. Exactly. But, and, and when we get deeper into this, I do want to talk about, you know, your love for gritty action movies, my love for gritty action movies, and especially some of our favorite, not just gritty action movies, but just downright trashy oh, yeah. action movies and, and trashy movies in general. But let's sum up a little bit of a script revolution, um, then move on. But uh, this morning before uh, we started talking, I knew of your site. I've actually told people about your site. Thank you. A friend who's a screenwriter, and he was on Blacklist. And I said, oh, why don't you try this script revolution I've been hearing about? And he did, and he really liked it right off the bat, and he uploaded stuff. Good, good. So, so this morning I said, you know what? I want to know what the user experience feels like. So I joined. I created a little account, which is free and is really simple. And, you know, you're very good at your programming. It's a very user-friendly site. I mean, it just took a couple minutes. I was up and running. And then, no, this is not a paid promotion. <laughs> it, it actually was just simple. And I, I didn't put up the full script. I did the log line and a poster because mm. I... I like your poster section. I'm very visual. And one thing I learned early on, especially, you know, the exploitation filmmakers, you know, movies back in the day got sold by, you know, a poster. It's like, okay, provocative poster, cool title, and a cool tagline that you could just yeah. sum up in like five seconds. And like one of my all-time favorites, the classic George Romero, uh, Dawn of the Dead, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead, poster with that big bald zombie coming up like a sunrise. Mm. And then you've got the tagline, when there's no more room in hell, the dead <laughs> shall walk the earth or something like that. Oh, you know what? You know what you're getting with that. And people don't realize that I found that industry members absolutely love posters. A picture says a thousand words. Some writers get upset about that. They they think, well, you know, I'm not a poster designer. What that's What's that got to do with anything? But it's such a competitive environment. You have to find as many ways to stand out as possible. Um, when 
I mean, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but if you went and bought a CD from a, a music store in, you know, until they, until they got replaced with streaming, every album had a picture on the front of it. Well, music mm-hmm. doesn't need a picture on the front of it. How does that work? Why, did, why wasn't it all just blank CDs with the, the artist's name on? Well, because we, we consume through that medium. We, we consume very efficiently. Books have cover images on them. Um, movies have posters this is how we consume and we have to look at ourselves and think well yeah posters draw me in posters tell a story to me therefore why shouldn't i use that to market my own material and we're conditioned even more so through streaming in just the past few years with you know everyone on netflix now we're just bombarded with a screen full of mini posters and everyone is making a split second decision Mm -hmm. whether or not to watch that program based on a small piece of artwork. Exactly. We're doing it all the time and we have such limited amount of time to make a choice. And I think, I feel like people really underestimate just how competitive and and how out of balance the supply and demand is in the spec script market. You know, I I'm a working writer. I, I have close contacts. I have maybe a dozen close contacts who I'm who I'm talking to on a near daily basis. Even they haven't re- read all my spec scripts. Even they don't read my new material when I finished it because they struggle for time. Okay. I'm going to get real on something. Oh, yeah. For people, for people listening, say, and say you're not a, a screenwriter or are, but especially people who aren't or really haven't been in this realm of reading scripts, it is really difficult to read a movie script. You have to be a really special person to read a script and in your mind see it come to life like a movie. And if that script isn't good, if it's just marginal, or worse, it's torture to get through a bad movie script. That, that's so true. I, I think, you know, this, people look at working writers and, and they can judge them on, on where their movies end up or, or how their movies turn out. But I think what people don't appreciate is that a working writer is considered exceptional. They would, you have to be exceptional to even get a movie in production, to get one optioned. And and it's hard to be exceptional when there's like 50,000 spec scripts a year submitted into, you know, mainly into Hollywood. But now that, you know, we've got a, we've got a global industry opening up. It, it's incredibly competitive. It is. And one thing that's nice about your site, you know, you do have the log line, and then you have the synopsis section. And again, if anyone is out there, you know, with a stack of scripts to read, they're going to first read a log line. And if you can get past that, do your little synopsis. Those are the hoops people jump through before they think it's even worth their time to read the full script. And what kills me is people, you know, spend months or years on a script and they just write the worst log line. They don't put any thought into a synopsis and not realizing those better be so good because no one will read your script unless you nail that first. 
that's so true you, you ha really have to consider that path the way people are drawn in and and how the marketing model works how marketing communication works you you tell the customer or the potential customer the same thing over and over in more detail and you know if you think about the posters with the title is telling them something it's telling them this is a this is an action thriller and then the log line tells them a bit more the synopsis goes into more detail and this idea that people are just going to go jump jump straight in and read a spec script based on very little information it's just it's it's a little ridiculous and i have little time for people who think that writing a two-page synopsis or a really decent logline or a 25-word bio is somehow a chore when they also want to be acclaimed and praised as a writer. I, I, it's odd how often I see that. I've watched people on forums just just for 10 years and they still haven't written a bio about themselves to draw people in. And they're wow. still hiding on a forum and they've never really blogged and they don't share their material anywhere. And I'm just thinking, how do you think anyone's ever going to discover you? Because there's no reasonably high profile producers out there who can get a movie made who's thinking, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go on a screenwriting forum, look at someone who's saying some quite interesting stuff assume that they're brilliant because they have no bio and then reach out and ask them to, to send me a spec script. Like, I don't understand the process. You have to make it as easy as possible. And I got discovered off the back of going out there and blogging and having a big mouth and saying reasonably controversial, opinionated things. And then someone thinking, you know what? I like the cut of this guy's jib. I like what he's saying. What's his actual writing like? Boom, my website. Boom, the posters. Hey, these log lines, whatever. And they jump in. And that's how you've got to tease and draw people in because you do not have any benefit of the doubt as an unknown screenwriter. Well, do you think that one thing that that did, like in the eyes of producers and, you know, people that could produce your work, I think it's that you present yourself as having a grasp on reality and. And I think there are so many aspiring writers out there that are a little bit deluded, like they have talent, but at the same time, the way they present themselves, maybe the work's okay, but a producer might be put off by their attitude and think, you know what, is this going to be worth the hassle of working with this person, especially the ones that think they're, you know, early drafts are so precious and aren't willing to change you know, for the requirements of the production to say, hey, could you do some rewrites? And the people who are just so rigid, not realizing, you know, this is this is way different once the script goes into the hands of the producer. Yeah, I, I, I get I do see a lot of that. I see a lot of people who I mean, I know that industry members, you know, if you want to make the hair stand up on the back of their neck, you say passion project or you know this is precious <laughs> to me um but it's i do find it bewildering how many people have written one script it's taken them a long time it has no validation and they're out there saying i only want to show this to james cameron no one else will understand it no one else can get it made i don't want to speak to joe blow they'll say that and i'm just thinking you know james cameron was a truck driver right 
you know he was driving <laughs> trucks and photocopying filmmaking books at the local library before he made you know really low budget b movies like it's amazing how many people walk into this with a arrogance and an elitism and part of the issue that compounds this is writers are known for being quite snarky and difficult at the best of times <laughs> anyone who's been working in this industry a long time has been had their fingers burnt by difficult precious writers who overreact and, and don't like to be told anything that even there's necessarily even constructive about their material so yes well, i think if you can be amenable and approachable that's a huge bonus well like here's a thing about that like say stage 32 or another form like that and this is where you know i really give it to a screenwriter you know for putting themselves out there and you know wanting some kind of feedback and all that in this day and age it's like you know be careful what you ask for because there really are a lot of people out there who do put other people down just so they can feel better about themselves so i think it's you know you have to be real careful with soliciting feedback in an online form that being said if you're doing it in a safe place where you kind of feel like okay there everyone really is here to help me and, and I think you really have to create those spaces and sometimes maybe curate it more. And I think maybe that's part, one of the next evolutions of this is, no, we don't want to totally restrict it, but at the same time, maybe people have to earn the right to, to critique other writers and maybe they have to be on the forum longer or, you know, other people have to judge them by in their previous feedback. So I'm just wondering, your point of view on that. You know, on the one hand, it's, you know, if you're an isolated writer, you're just craving feedback from someone, but at the same time, really ill-informed feedback can hurt you more. So how can you, in an anonymous format online, strike the balance between the two where you get, you know, some sort of semi-professional feedback, maybe it's from other writers, but a little more curated? You know, how can we create that? I mean, personally, I never found that. I, I was I was never able to find that sweet spot. Um, I think peer feedback is incredibly, um, it, it's a very dangerous thing to, to chase. Um, and it's even more dangerous if you start paying small amounts for, for, for you know, coverage, evaluations and other things like that. Um, generally speaking, if someone is, if someone proactively wants to evaluate your work, then you really have to question that person's motivation. Like, why is this person touring around on forums really, really eager to give their opinion? Um, chances are they want to give their opinion because they're bored, they want to knock people down, or they hold themselves in too high esteem. They certainly aren't knuckling down and writing. And the thing is, you have to do your due diligence and if someone's giving you feedback and they've never even had a short film you know made by a, a filmmaker that's very 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 worrisome yet people will hang on the words of strangers um for me what what actually worked was i went out and i read the books i read the books about how people broke in how they became big i read the books about the craft from people who had actually proven they, they excel at the craft and i became my own judge on this uh, i focused very heavily on my my voice and what i wanted to write to keep my motivation up and 
I release first drafts that have had no feedback from anybody. And my work was better for it. When I was listening to anonymous people on forums, they gave, they put so much fear into me. They gave me such really quite superficial and, and ineffective advice. Um, so I would always suggest to other people, you know, get out there and read the books. There's so many out there. You can borrow them from the library. You don't even have to pay for it. You will become your own judge. You will feedback on your own material. And what's brilliant is you will feel so motivated to go back and do a better job because it's come from within. Mm -hmm. Now, when you said you had, you know, a breakdown of sorts, what, eight or so years ago, was part of that because of negative creative feedback? It was actually, I was freelancing at the time and freelancing was, was going very well for me. I was a, I was doing um, sort of web and print marketing and, and marketing consultation and I had international clients and I was doing very well. But the, the problem with that model is first, marketing and graphic design is not very creative. It's more of an engineering exercise and it's a manipulative engineering exercise. It's, you don't feel necessarily that great doing it. So it doesn't really exercise your imagination. Um, but the other thing is, as, as a one-man band, if, if you do a really good job for your clients, they outgrow you. And I went through a situation where my biggest clients outgrew me. One went into a hostile takeover because they were they were doing well on the market and the other decided they needed to go to a full agency because they were doing really well of course that hit me hard um and i had i had that kind of throwing up of emotion one day wondering where i'm going and what i'm doing and i actually turned to writing as a form of therapy quite possibly the worst form of therapy i could have chosen because <laughs> writing does not pull you out of a dark place it, it, it kind of beds you into it Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're in a situation there a lot of writers are in where they think, okay, I want to write spec scripts or novels or whatever, but I need to make a living. So they go into like a field that has a creative element to it. It's not, you know, directly writing, but it's like, oh, it's still artistic. It's creative. So I, I, I get to exercise that. But then I think they realize that full-time job drains their create creative energy and when they get home at night or on the weekend they just have nothing left to put into that spec script that that's it exactly i think you also have to be really careful about the lifestyle that you you lead and what that lifestyle demands from you if you are going to go out and buy a brand new car and and and, and mortgage yourself up to the hilt you know if you're going to have a latte every every morning funding that lifestyle is going to demand much more than trying to break into a creative industry is going to demand for you to kind of sell your soul to the corporate world and it will exhaust you and it will distract you and you know i do know of writers who come home from a tough full-time job and they i know of writers who put on a pair of headphones and sit and write whilst you know, the kids are playing around them and screaming and, and watching television. And I, I've got such admiration for that, but you're putting yourself under so much pressure. I'm a big believer in lean living. And I think you have to, we have to consider making that sacrifice if you want to break into what is one of the hardest industries to break into in the world. Um, you have to think, you know what, 
maybe I'm going to go part-time. Maybe I'm going to go freelance. Maybe I'm going to downsize where I live. Maybe I'm going to, you know, drive an old beat-up car because the longer I can survive, um, the, the greater my chances of breaking in. And I made that commitment. I really, really sacrificed a lot. I sacrificed everything pretty much to, to break in. You know, years ago, I heard this advice for writers. It was something to the effect of, if you're going to support yourself with a day job, pick a physical job, like mm -hmm. be a construction worker or, you know, something that doesn't, you know, um, tax your intellectual power, you know, your, your thinking power, just something where it's physical. So at the end of the day, you're kind of uh, more refreshed and ready to, you know, activate your creative mind. And I always took that to heart and I thought, yeah, that actually is really good advice because at the end of the day, you know, in an office job, you just want to zone out. But if you do physical work, you actually feel kind of energetic at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, firstly, physical work is genuinely proven to be to be good for depression, good for the, good for the soul. Um, it will make you a happier person. Um, you will most likely be able to actually think about your writing whilst doing a job like that, which isn't taxing. Um, and you, yeah, I think definitely you, the good thing is you can come home and switch off. And a lot of corporate jobs aren't like that. A lot of corporate jobs, you come home and it's still hanging with you what you've got to do the next day. If if you know the punching in the next day just means that you're you're shoveling more rocks then you don't have that burden on you and you can write and also i think people can really underestimate the value of just general life experience and being an office worker isn't going to give you a lot of life experience being a delivery driver um going into war like the amount of people who come out of a tour of duty who are incredible writers because they have such a grasp of humanity and they've had a lot of time to reflect on their own humanity in that situation you know you can get close to that in a variety of jobs that make you sociable who who, who introduce you to people with character and an office is not a is not a good place to do that well i have to give a little uh disclaimer for the the construction workers listening, uh, I, I'm not discounting the intelligence that goes into the, the construction field and the, and the manual labor field, actually putting, putting a house together or, you know, laying, um, you know, a sewer line. It actually takes a lot of engineering and technical skills. So my little disclaimer, not to say that I've not known some very intelligent construction workers. That's very true indeed. It's a highly skilled job. And, you know, in writing, the creative arts, emotional intelligence will trump everything else. It will. And also just good street smarts, which brings us back to, you know, you're talking about having non-writing jobs that give you experience to draw from when you write. What have been some of the notable jobs, you know, you've had? you know, in the past 20 years that you've drawn from in your writing? Well, you know, one of the, I, this is really funny one. It wasn't strictly a job, it was volunteer work. And I quite like doing volunteer work. And um, for quite a long time, I was um, a volunteer emergency driver for the, uh, for the ambulance service over here. And because I, I've got a, a Jeep and it's lifted, big tires and all that, when it, we had adverse weather conditions like heavy snow or flooding, I would drive nurses, doctors, surgeons and, and all kinds of 
incredible people um, back and forth to the hospital or to the ambulance depots. And being a taxi driver is one of the best jobs in the world if you like people. And if you are a writer, you probably want to meet as many people as you can all the time. Now, now, what do you call a taxi in England? Um, we we would call it we would call it a taxi. You know, it's effectively you know like a cab driver. <laughs> and 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 this is what this job was like. You would you would get call outs. You would go out in in blizzards, in snow, to some really remote locations. And you would pick these people up, and they were amazing people. You know, because they were nurses or ambulance drivers or in some cases surgeons and you would chat with them as you're driving them in and i always found that fascinating and you know i i had the funniest experience it was when i first started writing and one of the odd little coincidences in my life was um she's now my ex-wife but she's very close to me and still a dear friend uh, my ex-partner the first present she bought me for christmas was um shooting from the hip which is a, a biography on quentin tarantino Ah. and i've had that for 17 years and revisiting that when i actually thought about getting back into screenwriting was was a huge refreshment so i go out it's heavy snow i pick up someone from my hometown to drive them to the ambulance depot and this person's sitting in the back and we're talking about what they were doing whilst they were waiting for us to get out to them and they said oh i was watching some movies and we're oh enjoying movies blah blah oh i like tarantino whatever and this person said bless them they said imagine that you just write a script and then you make a million dollars and i've never i've never got that close to pick, stopping the car and throwing someone into a blizzard and driving off but it was just like it was one of those moments <laughs> where it's like you don't realize how hard it is it was just it was it really highlighted the perception people have about overnight success and i resisted mm -hmm. going on a rant about tarantino's decade-long attempt to break into the industry how he ended up moving back in with his mother how he was uh, you know he was operating in tele sales and working in a video store and was just completely dejected you know by the whole system and it just it really brought all that back so that was that was a funny experience but yes i think one of the most valuable was was volunteer driving nice did you let people smoke in your cab um not to my knowledge i mean they, these were health workers so i don't think i ever had one that was a smoke <laughs> now this ex you mentioned is she the one that made you hide under the bed yes yeah joe um yeah i was yeah i mean yeah i was living in student accommodation i shouldn't have been there so yes i would roll under the bed when the the landlady made her calls around um so yeah it was quite an exciting little life i, I loved living by the coast over in bangor in, in wales that was again very insightful living around students was very insightful but see that anecdote is great i mean that that sounds like a you know classic uh british sex comedy from the 70s it does doesn't it and you know i my about me section is it is written to be as entertaining as possible um you know life isn't as it isn't that exciting i try to choose the highlights from it but i love it when people pick up on that stuff but writers they sit down to the empty page and and go ah i can't think of anything to write but <laughs> so often in life just ideas 
spill out so effortlessly, but then writers don't really capture them or think, oh, wow, that'd be a really good element in this story. They don't, because most writers aren't starting with what they've learned about life. That's, this is the big problem. Like, most writers I meet don't really know why they write or why we tell stories in the first place. You know, before moving on, I, I want to make this about you, CJ, but I have to share just a, a tiny story about, about this job I had. Just because there's this one job, and I've actually written about this, uh, that I think would be a cool basis for a movie. And again, but what's funny about this is someone probably already has written a movie about this. This is what's so disheartening. <laughs> you think you've got the best idea, then you go to IMDb or just do a Google <laughs> search. And there's like three movies with yes. the exact same plot already. Yes. And that really does happen because there's, you know, the common consciousness. But to make my long story short, this was like a long time ago. Let's just say this was a long time ago and that I'm older than you. So this was way back, <laughs> probably, um, I'd say late 80s. And I got this uh, part-time job, and it was so funny. This is pre-internet, and there was this local college paper, because I lived in this college town in Seattle by the University of Washington. And I think I saw this in the student paper. And this guy was hiring someone to help clean up a butcher shop. That wow. okay. And what was so funny, I called the number in in the little classified ad and somebody answered. And they and they said, Okay, sounds good. Can you start tonight? And I go, Oh my God. You know, I got hired over the phone without, you know, a person to person interview. That should have been the first red flag. <laughs> but hey, I thought this is great. So showed up, met the met the guy at the place. It was a butcher shop within a supermarket. But I met him right as the supermarket was closing and all the lights were going out and I had to, you know, work back in the butcher shop. And basically my job was to like they'd have these band saws where they would take the big hunks of frozen cow and, you know, saw yeah. them into steaks and things. So below the saw would be these big stainless steel bowls where it would catch all the blood and the fat and the gristle and all that stuff. And it was kind of chilled in the room, but it was still warm enough that that stuff eventually would kind of thaw out in the bowl and be, just be like this big bowl of blood with chunks of fat and grizzle. And so one of my big jobs was emptying those bowls. Wow. But, what was, but what was so hard is, you know, you pick it up. I think by the time he left, he showed me everything and I got to work. It was so dark in there and I couldn't find the light switch. <laughs> So I was basically carrying this giant bowl of blood to the sink, but it was almost near darkness. And I was afraid I was going to bump into something and the blood would splash on the floor and splash all over me. And the floor was really slick, too, because there was a lot of, you know, fat, animal fat that I was yes. afraid I was going to slip on. So somehow I made it through, but it's kind of like after the fact, um, I thought this would make the premise for a really spooky story like some guy gets hired over the phone to clean up a butcher shop he's left alone the lights are out you know he can't see anything and then really creepy things start to happen 
Yes, definitely. That's really interesting. You know, those kind of jobs, you know, those summer jobs, those Saturday jobs, those student jobs, um, a lot of them are dying off as industry moves out of, you know, the more civilized, say, sorry, the more civilized, the more developed parts of the world. Um, you know, when I look at the jobs that my dad had and his father had, I, I, it just blows me away. Some of the things they did, the characters that they met and the things they learned about themselves in the process. And I don't think you're going to get that working in a coffee shop. Sorry. No. And don't you think, too, like when you think of the characters in a movie, there's such a trend now. Maybe it's like and, and I don't want to bash the current generation. You know, we're all a product of our generation, but there's there's an increasing need for status and to, and to present yourself as being beautiful and carefree and i've got lots of you know shiny objects to show off you know designer labels and this whole idea of the ultimate luxury as being this leisurely teenager who's very pampered and privileged but then when you populate those people in your script and there's so many, you know, the current teen slasher flicks, they're a lot different than the ones from 40 years ago, because 40 years ago, the teens would be working like at a McDonald's or they, you know, actually be doing something that's not all glamorous. Now we're just supposed to root for these groups of young people that have really cushy kind of vain lives. And I think we kind of paint ourselves into a corner by by you know, not empathizing with the characters, because I think we empathize with working class characters or creative characters who are doing something rather than just showing up and looking cool. That's very true. I mean, we, we have a huge problem with out of control um, somatic narcissism, um, where everyone cares about how they look and you know, the status that they have and they see that the, the appearance of their status as a form of social mobility. And, and that's definitely translated into some areas of film. I mean, particularly in the, the area of rom-com, I see a lot of rom-com and I'm, I'm a little bit repulsed by the values and the lifestyles that are presented in them. Um, you know, a good example of how bizarre things have got is when the middle, um, you know, she's a great, sitcom when the middle released um it was described by hollywood as kind of as almost disgusting in the lifestyle it was presenting because it was considered so downtrodden and lower class just to be a normal middle class american family in the midwest and mm -hmm. it really highlighted it really contrasted against how ridiculous most sitcoms and rom-coms have become um people talk about the the apartment that the friends live in in friends the apartment that the people live in in how i met your mother and and you see this now you see this in a lot of rom-coms you know the 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 montage of the of the the new york city skyline and it's like you know oh check out samantha she wants to cut it in pr and marry a prince <laughs> and you know and it is like these guys are millionaires and this this woman has to choose between you know the one who's a, a penthouse apartment and the guy who's just like a lead programmer at a major software company and still own still a <laughs> six-figure income you know or, or the successful artist who genuinely is making like massive sales but he's he's bohemian and and the alternative choice and yes it's it, it's a little sickening it is and that whole idea of 
empathy and you know being relatable on the one hand we do want to watch movies as a fantasy and escape and there's this whole idea of aspiring to something and we do look for larger than life characters but at the same time you know there's something healthy about being able to identify with people who are very similar to us and so that we don't always feel inferior when we see these larger than life characters especially if they struggle i mean you know a good story contains life affirming values and that's what you really want to hook into um with with as as a viewer you want to go okay i empathize and i relate to what this character i relate to their flaws and i relate to to what they want out of life and hopefully i learn something from from witnessing their journey that's what you want to do so yeah if you can separate the story from the situation that's quite good what really concerns me is when you have a very a very you know paper thin story with kind of like some quite bizarre lessons at the end of it which are kind of like is that really an important life lesson and it's framed within a really superficial and narcissistic world i mean it's just that to me it's that's real junk food that's the real bad junk food that is going to be toxic to your mind to consume did you ever see that movie hashtag kill i didn't know I think it came out a few years ago. I hope I got that name right, that, the hashtag. And I think it was so notable at the time because I think it was one of the first big movies to use like a hashtag in its title. Mm-hmm. And there are parts I liked about it. There are parts I didn't. But the lead characters were these group. It was a group of teenage girls who are very much kind of uh, what would be like an Instagram influencer crowd. They were all high school friends, but they just very much, you know, were from upscale families and they were all, you know, very conspicuous consumption and what they were wearing. And at whoever's house it was at, it was just this amazing architectural wonder. You know, so it it was almost like this very dreamlike setting because it was in this very kind of modern architecture, but it was so modern and extreme, it almost looked uncomfortable. You know, when luxury crosses a point where maybe it's almost, you know, approaching ridiculousness because it just doesn't have any creature comforts inside. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, people want production value. That's the situation you've got. But isn't that because, isn't that a bit of a trope at this point? You know, horror movies which go after privileged little rich kids. Yes, and... And I think the thing about it is, I think they, on the one hand, the filmmakers wanted to talk about how girls bullied each other and this whole kind of jealousy and, you know, the frenemy kind of thing. Mm. So it kind of did that. But at the same time, it, I think it used the, the whole idea of a slasher movie to hang that on. And for me, I thought, well, just either make it this frenemy movie show more of that development or make it an out and out slasher film and i guess for me it got into a whole bigger thing of modern filmmakers i think trying to make sense out of this modern consumer culture through the lens of horror Mm. and i think it's a really tough one to do because you know glam horror it, it always looks good on paper but at the end, it's kind of like both kind of suffer. And, and I really haven't seen anyone fully do that yet. 
I feel the closest I've seen a movie that really kind of blew me away was the Neon Demon for doing I knew that. you were going to say that, and I, I'm real curious to, to get your take on that. Well, I mean, I, I found it fascinating because it really drew me in um, as, a, as a kind of, as, as a film that was, was kind of trying to punch, you know, as an art film. And it, it did genuinely drew me, draw me in. It was surreal. And it was one of those great things where I went in not knowing that it was effectively a horror film, which is the best way to go in, I think. And, and that it was, it was suggestive and subliminal. And, and I really felt like it nailed the aesthetic and it nailed the superficiality of that world and how toxic the idea of taking these characters and they, they are there to suck the blood life out of other people and, and, and suggesting that those people will excel in this world. I liked that. Mm-hmm. So I have mixed feelings on it. There's so much I appreciated in it. But and, and this goes on to a bigger issue of when you're creating a genre film, there are audience expectations. And I think if you're going into genre filmmaking, you know, you owe it to your audience to fulfill those expectations. Otherwise, why make a genre film? Why not just make a, a drama or an experimental film or whatever? And I think like action movies, the same thing. We've got expectations and you kind of, you know, are risking something if you veer too far away from that, you know, alienating your audience because you can yes. still be innovative. But the whole idea of genre filmmaking means you, you know, you have a contract with your audience that you're going to fulfill certain expectations. And I think with, you know, Neon Demon, it kind of wanted to have it both ways. I would have been happier if it was just an out and out experimental art film and even yes. gone crazier with that because the production design was beautiful mm. and, and then that soundtrack and the actors and and I just think that when it tried to then become a little more like a traditional horror movie, it's like, well, okay, if you're going to then dip your toe there, then you better give us more of what we want. Because I don't think the revelation at the end, I mean, anyone no. who knows horror saw that coming from a million miles away. You, could, you just couldn't rely on that shock value. And the other thing about it was there was such beautiful imagery by itself. It didn't need to go further into shock. I thought, yes. you know, it's, it's kind of what I hated about the Suspiria remake, which had a lot of things I liked about it. That finale... You know, of, you know, how many, you know, tons of blood can we, you know, throw into this scene <laughs> at a certain point? It, I just didn't know what the effect was for in Neon Demon. It's like, OK, yes, I get the message. Yes, I very much get the message. And at a certain point, it's just a sledgehammer, you know, hammering it into your head over and over. And it's like we get it. We get the kind of, you know, the sleaze factor you're going for. Mm -hmm. But then at a certain point, okay, if you're going to go into that sleaze territory, you gotta you gotta finesse that somehow. And in the end, then I found the neon demon not that shocking. That's what kind of disappointed me. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. It, it, it felt it felt flat. I mean, my biggest issue with the, the neon demon is just it takes itself too seriously, and I'm like. 
if you're going to play with this, at least have some fun with it. I mean, if you compare it to like American Psycho, so it's kind of playing in a very similar place. It's about about the most privileged people in the world, these people who are kind of perceived as beautiful and successful and their dirty secret. You look at like American Psycho. Now, American Psycho is so funny and comedic about itself. Yes. Um, And you have a protagonist who's really likable because of, because of that charming human element and their kind of their, their their own humor that comes with that, they're kind of almost you know cornballing the whole thing. Um, I, I prefer that. I prefer something that's a bit more honest and isn't it doesn't fall into the realm of pretentiousness. That's my concern. Is is when you get into that pretentious world. See, the one person that that comes to mind who can just take visuals. And in you know an art direction and you know production design, and you know have these out there senses. Hoda, okay, I'm a, so a big fan of, and especially Holy Mountain, which you know is, is very discovered, and it's nice to see new generations, you know, revering that. But if something like Neon Demon, you know, approached Holy Mountain more, I was just saying, you know, this whole story is whacked out. I don't know how much sense it makes, but who cares? But let's make every frame, every scene, just this beautiful visual event. Yeah, I, I, you know, you have to think to yourself, like, where is the market in today's world for a, for a film like Neon Demon? Like, when you think about the money spent, when you think about the talent attached, you think about the, the risks being taken. How do you get a film like that through with? becoming development suit because somebody somewhere wearing a tie who hasn't hasn't got a creative bone in their body is going to see say hang on a second how's this going to sell and who's it going to sell to and what are the critics mm-hmm. going to think and that's the problem you fall into with that um it's too big the film is too big to to be done right mm-hmm. and i think that was produced by amazon studios was it? So I didn't know mm-hmm. that. I think it was one of the earlier ones when they started producing. And again, you know, even if I don't like it a hundred percent, I mean, there's enough in it, you know, to you know spark discussion. So obviously, there's a lot of talent in it. You know, I don't want to bash it, mm. but I think it's a it's a bigger thing. I think this generation that came up after Tarantino, yes, that just thinks you know winning the lottery is oh, if my movie can somehow shock in a way that no other movie has shocked before and it's this lottery mentality of can i find the shocking gimmick that's going to get me noticed i i agree with that because well a lot of people think it's the shock and they don't realize that the shock carries something much bigger with it so people will look at something like reservoir dogs and they will say well the ear slicing scene is mm-hmm. what what drew people into that movie and it's like well not if you look at the history if you look at the history tarantino kind of he he jumped on the back of the black exploitation genre and -hmm. took it to another level and what he had when he went to the festivals a lot of people who are into black exploitation he said you're making movies for us you're taking that vibe and you're and you're making and that's where a lot of he drew a lot of people in from and I mean, if if you went even deeper with it, the ear slicing scene in 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 Reservoir Dogs needed Tarantino his distribution deal. You know, um, Harvey Weinstein's wow. wife 
told him that she would leave him if he if he distributed that movie with that scene in but what i find bizarre is people will take something from 1992 that was shocking then and they will they will do something on that same level and think that that's going to be shocking now and think that that's going to get them attention now well it isn't like a lot has happened between now and then right and even about six years before reservoir dogs you know blue velvet uh, Mm. david lynch that was very influential and so I think when Reservoir Dogs came out, that was that post-Blue Velvet era. And what's so funny is looking back, you know, over 30 years later, when I saw Blue Velvet in the theater when it came out, people actually walked out of the theater because they thought it was too violent. This is it. This, this is, people sometimes don't realize how much has changed and, and how tougher the average viewer is and how... And how- prone to shock the average viewer is like uh, and to do that to really shock people in his screenplays is really difficult because at the same time you know you, you're gonna you're gonna really reduce your market as well um it's, it's hard enough to 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 really cut cut a swab into it but you know reservoir dogs is, is a movie about masculinity it's masculinity in crisis and it's mm-hmm. a fascinating presentation of masculinity and and what we consider it to be and the friendships that we make and and that's what really you know along with you know very similar to fight club that's that's what carries a movie like that through people aren't watching it because well, they aren't loving it because of the ear cutting scene they might talk about it because of that mm-hmm. but they come out the other side because they're like holy crap there's this person's actually like really presenting masculinity in an interesting way. Another thing that scene did, which has been so imitated, and I'm sure it was done before that, but it really kind of put it into high gear, is taking uh, an old favorite pop song and juxtaposing it against uh, you know a scene that doesn't quite match. You know, like, <laughs> Like, you know, when the, the ear was being cut, what were they playing? Um, stuck in the Middle with You? Yeah, I mean, that was interesting because, you know, the, the history on that is that Tarantino's mother was really into bubblegum pop. And he loved the idea of having this, you know, K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s radio show that's just playing in the background through his whole movie. And it was the idea of it was a bubblegum pop uh, radio station. That, that, that was this kind of this this would kind of hold everything together and um, behind the scenes so that's why you've got k billy you know he's actually talking he's introducing stuff in the background which is a great a great twist um you know so back then that felt fresh now it mm. feels forced like oh i'm making an edgy movie and ironically inserting classic pop songs definitely if you've got any kind of surf guitar or anything like that that feels you know, like people will say, you know, that feels very Tarantino when you have certain tracks. And I think that's dangerous if, if people actually do put that into into a movie because it can feel like it's just imitation. And um, it was a great idea at the time, just the same as using classical music over the top of horror and violence, you know, as Kubrick was doing. Um, that, Like you say, the juxtaposition. And what was this in um, Apocalypse Now? You know, there's also very strong use of music in some of the uh, combat scenes. Yeah, yeah, with the whole, you know, we, we play, we, of course, oh, what is it? In the, oh, in no, the... what was it? Like in with a helicopter coming up and was it some? Um, I'm going to have to look it up. I um, do. 
Just you know, and it was just this idea of, of terrifying people with, with the sound with the soundtrack. Uh, right at the but from, but from a screenwriter point of view, I think a lot of them see these scenes and they think, oh yeah, and 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 I know you know this when they put in the script, like you have to use this song while this is happening in my script. And they get <laughs> irate when the producer tells them our budget, you know, we just can't get this, you know, the Beatles, hey Jude, for this scene. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, I, I people people look at the directors, the auteur director writers, or producer director writers, and the, with the control that they have, and they think that they can come in and and push their own vision through when someone else has earned the right to have complete creative control, but with no appreciation for the cost and implication of trying to do what they're trying to do to get that music. I am. You know, the people I'm involved with, you know, we're very, very lucky. We have an amazing composer, Tommy Fields, who is just, is, you know, he's just absolutely brilliant. And he, he gave this whole rock vibe to break even that we've just done now and what's really interesting is what the production that we're moving into music is play plays a huge part in the script the script actually talks about the music and how the, how the music um is associated with certain events but it doesn't dictate the music it's basically a it's it's trying to collaborate with the composer and trying to reach out and say you're brilliant what can we do together mm-hmm well, I want to segue here into exploitation film. Mm. I'm going to do another quote from you. But before we do that, no, I'm just going to do it right now. So I like you, you coined a new word mm. and you call it next ploitation, kind of like exploitation, next ploitation, which you describe as good old fashioned hedonistic entertainment mixed with modern progressive values well you're you're covering all your bases there aren't you it's, it's a very pretentious statement and it's quite interesting <laughs> because because it's a very polarizing statement because in this day and age to even use the word exploitation it, it gets people um concerned as to what that really means like if you say you like exploitation films or you want to make exploitation films you know it's there's a, well, what does that what was that what does that mean like what does this person want to do he wants he wants to you know mm-hmm. uh, objectify people and, and everything like that and mm-hmm. i think if you the, the movie industry particularly hollywood is the the business of exploitation and if you don't realize that you are the one being exploited like big budget hollywood films are b movies with a lot of money and Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think firstly we have to get on board with that. But you know what I want to do is I want to take more of the core of exploitation, which is more of the fun, more of the acceptance of basic human um, desires, but not do what not fall into the same trap that a lot of movie makers make where they do get creepy they do objectify people in in a way that isn't conducive to today's values mm. to, to to say that to some way and um, particularly the way women are presented i i feel that stuff can get cheapened in a quite creepy way and it's hard to stop people doing that it's really hard to stop people going down that road i like good honest gritty stuff um, mm-hmm. and i grew up i grew up with so many fantastic exploitation movies in my life 
Right. And I mean, we could talk a lot about this because um, that's been kind of my catch word now for a few years, like even not even realizing, you know, I think one day I, I woke up and said, you know what, I'm not a horror filmmaker. I'm not an art filmmaker. You know, we, we experiment with things to find our way. And I said, you know what, I think the best thing that describes me is, you know, exploitation. When you look at all of the films you love and that influenced you, and you kind of, you know, merge them all together. And I think, yeah, that's kind of where I feel my people are. And the, But the thing about exploitation is there's so much nostalgia about it now. And there's, you know, eras, you know, of exploitation in every decade. And I think the mistake we make is, you know, we can't go back. I think it's those movies that try to recreate a 70s exploitation film yeah. is yeah. always going to, pale in comparison to the real deal we have to find our own way and make our own you know 2020 version of exploitation i, I agree with that and and you know my view of an exploitation is, is very much in that area i feel that sadly um the exploitation genre i compare exploitation to punk in the music genre because oh, nice. because punk isn't necessarily a style of music it's an attitude and a lifestyle around music if you look at proto-punk of the 1970s you've got like debbie harry reading out like that it was experimental it was artistic but it knew what it was and it, it, it really focused on artistic values and that's the funny thing about exploitation a lot like punk is exploitation in some regions of the globe is an art film it depends on where it is it changes it's it's organic mm -hmm. like that if, if you view it from different angles it's a very different thing and I, I love that kind of kind of irony that people look at exploitation they think it's trashy but it's actually mm -hmm. highly artistic well tell um, me your, your thoughts on this because you're yeah because you're going from writer into more the the production and as you do that like like a screenwriter lets go of their script and suddenly there's all these other influences on it. So here's what I've always appreciated about the classic exploitation filmmakers like um, like Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, and all those, you know, invented the splatter genre and whatnot in their own way because of their low, low budgets. They were forced to be auteurs. But they did it without this pretentiousness. But most of the classic exploitation is kind of like an auteur format where one person who probably wrote and directed it has their stamp on everything, you know, Ed Wood. Mm -hmm. And that's what intrigues me about it. And that's why when Hollywood has now appropriated it, it's diluted the auteur quality of it. It absolutely has. I mean, the thing about exploitation is exploitation has always sneaked in to Hollywood. It's always sneaked its way in. And if you look at the auteur revolution of the 70s, you know, it kind of all starts with Bonnie and Clyde and that shootout scene at the end. That mm -hmm. absolute, let's turn it up to 11 and let's absolutely shock people. And then off the back of that, you know, you get Easy Riders, you get Stevenberg doing Jewel and Jaws, you know, which is basically Creature of the Black Lagoon with, with more money thrown at it. Mm -hmm. And it all comes off the back of exploitation. But what, what, 
people do need to be aware of is is the art slowly comes out as it becomes more commercial because art and commerciality kind of have this really bizarre relationship um, mm-hmm. where you occasionally hit the sweet spot. In the 70s, we hit the sweet spot. Exploitation started to get good money thrown at it. It started to get advertised well. It started to, people really thought about the storytelling behind it and, and great effects, great model making, uh, great performances. But what's bizarre... And, it's, and this is why I compare it to punk, is it started to cannibalize on itself more and more and more where it became mm. retrospective. Retrospective to the point where people are like, oh, it's so bad, it's good. And I feel mm. that we really hit the low point. And I feel so bad saying this because I still think they were great movies with, with the right attitude. But we kind of was, was the grindhouse movement, was this mm-hmm. whole let's go back and do grindhouse films with with an ironic awareness and that to me took all the worst parts and presented them to the general public that was my big problem. The ironic awareness you hit the nail on the head yeah yeah, and, yeah. And, and and you know for instance when i watched planet terror which i think was a brilliant distillation and retelling of the zombie genre from a big budget movie director with an appreciation from it i saw that with a sense of humor and a self-awareness and thought it was hilariously funny in a lot of areas and pretty well done if you take for example you know people i know they nearly walked out of the cinema oh, no. because they didn't realize it was satirical Oh, okay. You know, and I've seen I've seen the same with things like Black Dynamite. I think Black Dynamite was one of the best satire films made in, in the last couple. You know, in the, in the last ten, fifteen years, I've seen I've had friends watch that, and, and partners like where the guys watched it. He's gone out and bought the DVD afterwards because he thinks it's such a brilliant piece of satire. The girlfriend's gone out and said, "This is the worst film I've ever seen in my life," and that's my issue is that we've gone out to the general public with a genre, with a very sort of niche genre, and we've gone and shown them all the stuff that puts them off. Here's one, you know, um, sweeping generalization I'll make, even though I say I don't want to bash the new generations. But I think people who have grown up in this just tight, politically correct environment that there is less of a sense of humor. And I think I see a lot of young people who are afraid to laugh, not just at these movies, but at themselves. And I think these movies make them nervous because they don't even, it's, it's like they want permission to laugh. They don't know that it's still okay to laugh at some things. It, it's, it's, I think people don't realize when you watch like a good exploitation film is, you know, if you take, for instance, like Cronenberg's Crash or, or something like that, or more recently Nocturnal Animals, which is very polarizing and, and got a lot of bad press because of it being politically incorrect, is the film isn't necessarily indulging in this stuff for its own gratification. It's indulging it to disarm you because it's saying you enjoy this. That's what the commentary is. And I know that holding a mirror up can be a really, really pissy excuse to, to indulge. But when done right, you are saying you like this. These are your vices. This is human, except that this is being human. Um, and that's, that's what I really like about that is if you actually 
accept that what you are is an animal with a prefrontal prefrontal frontal cortex which is trying to make you sociable and acceptable and not kill people and not engage in some really really dark behavior then you can enjoy this without feeling guilty and and having to to approach it from a politically correct standpoint mm -hmm. and i think the whole thing with people who like old exploitation films is they can both laugh at the low budget quality of them, but they don't feel superior. They're not like knocking them to feel good. They're in on the whole party of it. They want to enjoy it, but there's, I just see so many, you know, of the new generation, I can just picture them sitting, you know, in a theater seat with their arms crossed and their body really stiff, like, oh, you know, I dare you to entertain me. And they just don't relax and loosen up to it. They don't. And, and what's bizarre about that is sadly that the same people who will, will get very uppity and angry um, about the, the perceived lack of political correctness in an exploitation movie will go out and watch a big budget Hollywood movie and not see the hypocrisy in what they're doing. They will cheer on a protagonist who is open firing an automatic machine gun at police to get away from a, you know, a bank robbery they had to do. And just because you don't see the police getting shot up and cut up and dying on the ground, that's considered morally superior somehow. Um, what I love about a good exploitation movie is it actually brings you down to the humanity of it. Um, when you see police officers getting shot up in their police car and you see the blood exploding from their chest and you see the real graphic effects of that violence, that is a lesson in life. That makes you go off and think how bad that is. It doesn't make you want to go off and do it. Whereas when you watch a movie and all of that is kind of just polished and put in the background and there's no blood and there's no gore and there's no screaming, I think that's way worse. I think what we see in big, big budget Hollywood action movies now is 10 times worse than what you'll see in an exploitation movie because it's so fundamentally dishonest. Right. And we're so numbed. It's almost like watching a video game, the violence. We're just so separated from that. It's just a body count. It is. And, and in worse still, it's, it's a body count without the bloodshed and the humanity that comes with it. You don't feel a loss of life. You don't feel violence and brutalism. You don't feel any of that. So it's really easy to walk away from this year's biggest blockbuster, not caring about the fact that they've just torn up an entire city and millions have died in the process. Who cares, right? You know, as long as the, the hero kisses the girl at the end and they go off as a prince and princess. Well, I think another thing that's altered everything is cable TV. And now that I think more people, especially this year, you know, are watching, you know, really well-produced TV series on, you know, Amazon and Netflix and HBO and, you know, all this, We've, we have such a good pick, but again, they have assimilated so many elements of exploitation that we were just bombarded with shock and, and sex and blood that for an indie filmmaker, how can you have the same subject matter, but without the glossy budget and the recognizable stars? I think that's a big reason why some people will accept, you know, a really gory story. Like when, like for instance, remember that Jennifer Lawrence movie from a, couple years ago where she plays mm. the russian ballerina yeah and 
and is like Red Sparrow. Was that it? Yes, she strips off naked in it. I believe. Yes, and you know, I I was really torn on that because you know what, that should have been the plot for some sleazy, you know, no budget movie from the seventies with you know no name actors, mm-hmm. but we can kind of accept it because, you know, that's Jennifer Lawrence and some of the other supporting actors are well known and had a, you know, big budget. But when you're watching it, it's like, this thing was really sleazy. It's a bit, it's, it's, we have this bizarre thing where if it comes from someone who's very high up in the industry and who's praised, then it's seen as brave and, and owning their sexuality and making a statement. Whereas if it's an exploitation film, it's seen as crass, cheesy and attention seeking. Um, and people have this very polarized view of that, which is which is really hard to shake. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing with this uh, Red Sparrow movie is... I mean, it was competently made. There was a lot that was good about it. But you have to ask yourself, okay, is it okay because Jennifer Lawrence agreed to play the part and she's voluntarily doing these things? But you could also look at it from the other angle of whether or not. I mean, if people want to get up in arms for a woman kind of, you know, degrading herself in a movie... You know, whether or not that was part of the script. I mean, this is one of the most degrading roles I've seen a woman play in a long mm-hmm. time. But because, again, it had this sense of, you know, Hollywood A-lister. Oh, it's it's art. But it was played by an unknown with a lower budget and lower production values. Oh, this is sleazy exploitation. That, that's exactly how I feel. I feel that there is a you know a cognitive dissonance between between the two things, um, and and you you generally see that there is it's, it's a bizarre world, particularly with women, where certain women are allowed to be called empowered and certain women are allowed to be called attention seeking. And it sadly it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does tend to revolve particularly around money. Mm-hmm. Well, I encourage you to see the movie, but just to give you you know one little tidbit. You know, she she's uh she plays this Russian ballerina who breaks her legs so she can't do ballet anymore. But her mother is ill, and now that she's not a, a ballerina, they're going to move her to a lower income house, and her sick mother won't get the fine medical care anymore. Mm. So she's so desperate, she uh, joins this underground or secret Russian spy program where they train men and women to become like sex spies and seduce you know important men and heads of state and then blackmail them but it's the scenes at this school which is run by charlotte rampling who is pretty good in it but boy is she mean in it but uh, these scenes were like if it was like you know an Emmanuel movie or just some you know sleazy Euro sleaze from Italy in the early seventies, and and the things that they're just doing in it, it's like you know they didn't necessarily even need to be shown to further the story. They mm-hmm. just seemed like they were there purely for this sexy shock value. Yeah, I mean. America in particular has a very strange relationship with sex and violence. Um, You know, we spoke about exploitation elements making it into mainstream television. And it's like, well, the sex does. The sex makes it in. We've we've gone crazy for that. Game of Thrones couldn't have been more of the kind of poster child for just squeezing as much sex as you can into television. 
just mm-hmm. just just completely unnecessary like as an exploitation fan i find like game of thrones so gross because it's so cheap and crass about how it presents sex it just does it just to be cool it's in, in the same way as a teenager would talk about it to make people like them it's just i just think it's sad mm-hmm. um and and it will do that with sex but it won't do it with much else it will not do it with violence it's this weird world um you know and psychologists have spoken about this where a 12 year old boy can walk up to a magazine stand and he won't be able to buy anything that talks about the sexuality of human nature but boy can he get as much bloodlust as he wants from that from that rack of magazines yeah it's true well besides game of thrones you know which is a good recent example for me i think i saw the turning of the tide which is probably what around early 2000s is when nip tuck came out oh yes and that was, you know, the two plastic surgeons and mm. their practice. And that's when I thought, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe some of this stuff is being shown on TV. And at first, I really thought this was like real surgery footage. I was shocked that the special effects people uh-huh. made this. They did a really good job. But it wasn't just that. Okay, they showed a lot of really graphic, you know, plastic surgery. But the plot lines got really kinky. And I'm not saying yes. that was a bad thing because they were definitely exploring just a lot of the kinky side of life. And and it seems like a lot of the, you know, week after week when you're doing plastic surgery, you can only do so many nose jobs and facelifts. Mm. So they started to get into some really obscure, weird stuff. And it was kind of interesting. I mean, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, you know, they brought in a slasher killer element. Then, you know, suddenly became, you know, a slasher movie show. But it was also this whole thing of at what point do you paint yourself in the corner when you've had so many outrageous storylines that Mm. are you just strictly making up stories just to outdo what you did the episode before? Yeah, you know, there's two really interesting things there. Firstly, um, I don't think people appreciate how the people that push the, the, those areas can be outcast. I mean, you know, I know people who are involved in making the Red Shoe Diaries. and people Oh, Zalman King. Zalman King, you know, and, and people who were involved in doing that at the time became almost blacklisted from Hollywood. It was people who said, I will never work with you again for, for being involved with that. Well, you know, look where, look where the industry's ended up. It's ended up imitating that and desperately wanting to be that. So the, the people who are on the forefront of that Sadly, um, you know, they, they take the hit. They, they take the, the hit quite often. Um, but secondly, um, the average person and sadly the average screenwriter too doesn't seem to appreciate the business of television. And the business of television is if a TV network gets regular viewers, they never want to stop that show. They never want to stop it. And, you know, one of the biggest examples of this was Lost, where they wanted to do, I think it was three seasons and wrap it up a nice tight little package. And the Mm -hmm. TV network said, there's no way we're going to let you wrap this up because it's got viewers and trying to get people into a new show is incredibly difficult. It feels impossible for the network. So, yeah, if you have viewership to a TV show, you will be pushed to do everything imaginable to just keep people hooked they never want it to end Mm -hmm. well before we leap over and talk about your breakthrough break even uh, i just want to give you one last little uh, way to um 
sort of sum up nexploitation. And again, if you think that we actually can take, you know, the wreckage of what used to be in the exploitation world and whether it's diluted or overexposed now, like, like, do you have hope that we can take back exploitation? I, I have hope. I wouldn't be doing what I'm trying to do through Rebel Rouser if I didn't have hope. The problem is, is at the moment, I don't know where the marketplace is. Um, my spec scripts cross over in this really odd space and television it crosses over between lifetime movies and the kind of stuff you see on the sci-fi channel the problem is is there's no middle ground between those two there's no middle ground between thrillers that appeal particularly to women because they have female characters in them and sort of kind of like the b-movie world where you know you've, you've got all those kind of action elements there's no in between at the moment and i i wish there was i wish there was either a new channel or either lifetime or sci-fi jumped on a kind of pulp revival but a modern pulp revival i would love to see that at the moment it's kind of it's just horror and it is science fiction on the other side it's just yet another you know um you know serial killer coming for a woman type thing so you know tv it's like i don't know where the space is maybe i'll have to try and create the space space somehow or push it um within the film world again you know i really feel like there's a hell of a lot of people my age you know middle age who want to fire up something like netflix and have 90 minutes of a good old kind of early 90s um, feeling of indie film. I think we really want that again, where there's some deepness to the story, but at the same time, it, it, it's not taking itself too seriously. And it's indulging in a lot of what we saw back then, where it was kind of true elements of our own humanity that we need to face and accept. Were you a fan of the... The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series? Um, actually, not at all. I, I really, I, and it was a real shame because, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Fincher. Um, and my biggest issue with that was the the rape scene of the girl where she's at this, right. this guy's house. And I felt like, you know, I, I don't want to go into too much kind of lurid you know creepy detail about that sex scene but when she gets raped it's 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 done in a really quite pornographic way the way you see her the parts you see of her body the the, the way it's all being kind of the makeup the sheen the the, the hairlessness of it all like it it's all done in this way and then when she goes back and she she dishes out the justice to the guy suddenly it's none of that suddenly we don't see the violence we don't see the 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 the, the action unfolding and i felt like that really for me it really chickened out and cashed mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. so a, just more luridly going over her pain and not as much over his pain i i felt like there was like it, it was it was almost like it was made for people to jerk off to when it was her. Like it was like mm -hmm. it wasn't that wasn't to me. That's not how rapes should be presented. Not with that kind of almost like like the porn industry had stepped in with like the the body makeup and you know someone had gone over with the laser hair removal and it's like let's have this angle where we can see, you know we can see her 
her buttocks mm-hmm. from this angle and the thighs and, and everything like that. And I just, it, for me, it was just like, this is what, this is what Hollywood does. This is what Hollywood does is it, it, it has it both ways. It wants to have its cake in it. It wants to eat it. It's like, we're going to do rape, but we're going to do rape in a way where we're actually going to kind of almost, I, I hate to say this, almost glamorize it because it's not, it's mm-hmm. not gritty and it's not horrible just because it's a subject, not because it's a dark room. And, I don't know, maybe, you know. I think I think people should watch that and just and just see what I'm trying to trying to to criticize. Well, you know, when <laughs> a movie like Irreversible opens with a very prolonged, you know, and very um, gritty rape scene, mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that trickles down? Do you think people think, oh, Gasper is you know winning awards at Cannes Film Festival? wow, you know, I want to match him, so I want to do something just as prolonged and kind of ugly. You know, at what point does a scene like that not serve your story and just become just kind of ugly on its own? I think it's all about how it presents the overall story and the journey that the characters are going through in that story. If you have a scene like that, and the rest of the story kind of hinges on it. It maybe it hinges on how long it goes for or how you know how brutal it is. Then if we appreciate the journey the character goes through because of that, I think it's absolutely justified. What I don't like is when it's done purely for indulgence and then it, it doesn't really affect anything else. Like nothing else really makes sense in relation to that. Mm-hmm. So if well, you, one, yeah. Yeah. Well, one reason I brought up Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, um, I didn't see Fincher's version. I saw the original uh, Swedish version, Mm. which, again, had a very ugly rape scene, which it was just so out there compared to the rest of the movie. And it was very uncomfortable to watch and very prolonged. And, you know, I think in that same way as probably Fincher's, it it could have served the story and you could have got the same idea of you know what was motivating her need for revenge and how bad that guy was and how he was really you know had taken advantage of her but they could have done it with a lot shorter scene with not as lurid of angles and you know you know there's just ways to show that and it's very subjective but i think what what i was trying to think of in just the bigger sense of those books which also Uh, motivated movies Um, you know he basically was part of this whole movement called Nordic Noir this Mm -hmm. is when not just you know the uh, the writer of the uh, dragon tattoo books but a lot of other you know Norwegians Swedish and you know Nordic and Scandinavian writers they were kind of reinventing the crime genre and then you know other movies were being made based on other books and just some you know flat out movies being made from scratch and i think they were kind of creating their own new version of exploitation and i think that's always been an in- interesting part of exploitation is the crime drama but it's more of you know the hard boiled mm. you know i'm hired to do something but i have to kind of go through this very dangerous um um set of society what would you call that just another um like the underground i have to you know infiltrate a drug gang or go into this the the mob world and i think that's always been an interesting way to see the underbelly of life is is through a private eye or a detective 
Yeah, I think, you know, going into that sordid world, you know, a detective is a great way to do that, where the detective is always elevated above the, the, the world that they're in. They're not really part of it. And um, I think it's even better if you have an anti-hero. I just, I just think that what Hollywood does is, is Hollywood, like... It takes a very paper-thin version of a really deep-seated issue. So it will take something like rape, for example, and it will be like a very aggressive guy trapping a girl and brutally raping her, where it's like, well, 99% of rape cases are, are like friends who mm-hmm. worm their way in and do something wrong. And it's like, well, that's not particularly brave. It's like it's not telling me something I don't already know, that there are psychopathic men out there who trap women and do that. You know, if you want to really push the boundaries of that subject look at straw dogs straw dogs mm-hmm. was doing that in 1971 where you've got susan george and for those that don't know susan george plays a character who gets raped in her own home and actually falls for the guy who rapes her because she's 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 sexually fascinated by this brutish man well you know this Psycho- there's plenty of psychologists that want to talk about that that's an interesting element of humanity it's a kind of rather bizarre slightly kind of difficult to deal with side of humanity that that, Mm -hmm. that we have to be able to talk about and deal with and process and 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 accept so yeah i i don't find a lot of it very brave going up going on that but yes the you know what we're seeing coming out of the nordic region you know like you say of nordic noir and things like that is guess what it's not coming out of hollywood it's coming out of these these little pools these little sort of these little little areas of the world where people are actually where you've got filmmakers who are able to push things a bit far you know and maybe the norwegians are a more accepting audience maybe they're, they're more willing to to watch content like that well, Dragon Tattoo, so much of it is based upon family secrets and, you know, people being secretive about what they've done and which is, you know, very Bergman-esque. So maybe they retain some, you know, that Scandinavian feel. But what kind of got me was after Dragon Tattoo was so popular, you know, with the big twist, because it was the other character, not just, you know, the woman who was raped, but then the, you know, the, the other, you know, the family part of that where you find out the woman had been, you know, wasn't she like molested by her father or there was just some mm. kind of trauma, yeah. incestuous rape or I can't even remember. I probably blocked out the whole movie now, but I think on the heels of that being so popular, that suddenly became, you know, the new trope. You know, everything is explained because, oh, this woman had been, you know, raped by her father when she was Mm. a child or raped by her stepfather. And it almost became like this expected thing or just this crutch of, oh, now this explains everything and the whole motivation for the, you know, this character's actions. And again, that's just people latching onto one element, but not building a cohesive story that supports that. It's like we're supposed to think this is deep because now the big revelation comes. And I hate things that are so revelation based because it's still the subtlety Mm -hmm. of the journey. And I think a lot of screenwriters think, oh, if I can have that one revelation or twist, I'm a genius. Yeah. You know, you know, my feeling on that topic is um, if, if you've written a good enough story, the end doesn't matter um, because so much of the story is taking place early on midway and, you know, you're, you're, you're 
dark night of despair, whatever you want to call it, and things like that. It also doesn't matter, providing you have acceptance at the end. And I think people they get to the end of, of right, they get to the, the end of a script, and they want this big finale, and they want to be clever. And the problem is, is because there's no depth to the writing and the storytelling, there's no big lesson, there's no life affirming value which is coming through. Then you know they're compensating for that. Um, I think you know if you've got it right, you can have the most low key tragic ending. Like you can have the most depressed. Like Thelma and Louise has the most like depressing ending of a film, right? But it's right. absolutely a hundred percent life affirming. Which is these two people are in a hopeless situation and they're not going to get taken alive. Why even continue? And the crazy thing is, you get to the end and it's seen as a win. Mm-hmm. They they go out on their terms. Exactly. It's seen as a win. And the thing is, that translates to real life and, and, and people who find themselves in that situation. It's life affirming. So I do think that people try to, you know, a lot of writers, try, they cheapen what they're doing by trying to be clever, too clever. If you've got it right, it doesn't matter. You know, when I critique a film, you know, it's not like, oh, I hate it or love it. You know, I try to get to a point where I appreciate you know, elements of it. And if overall it ends up being a great story, all the better. So, you know, you know, we've been talking about Neon Demon. And again, you know, I appreciate so much, but, you know, it's still fun to talk about, you know, the parts that left me, you know, wanting or confused. But one movie I just have to bring up and get your opinion. Because again, I don't, I, I don't bring these up to bash them. Yeah. But if you know, for from a screenwriting point of view, if we're exploring them, and this one just got under my skin because it was so popular and people bent over backwards to praise it, and it's Knives Out. Okay. Now I, I'm gonna have to look that up because I'm ignorant to this. Knives. Okay. Out. And it was with Daniel Craig, and it was a murder mystery. Someone oh, gets yes. murdered, and he comes to this wealthy home and has to interrogate everyone. And I mean, there's a lot that's really well done with it. The acting is really good, but it's another one that relies on these twists and turns and they just rang false to me. And everyone was saying how brilliant it was. And I think anyone with any knowledge of this genre, this stuff is, you know, just, you know, murder mystery 101. It was not this mm. revelation and maybe that people, are just so not well-schooled in this that when something like this comes along, they think it's a revelation. They do, and then you see a lot of imitation from people that want to break in, which is which is the kind of worst way to do things. Um, you know, I, I hold my hands up to not being a very good plot writer. I don't write very good plots. Um, my focus is more on character development more than anything and you know the the journey they go on and you know i i, I plot to me it's just i just you know some people are masters of that and my mind doesn't work that way you know i have a dyslexic mind it doesn't it doesn't it isn't able to plot stuff out particularly well um but yeah you you get this you get this where sometimes you, you're watching a movie i mean i think one of the big ones in that area was inception like the amount of people who thought Inception was absolutely phenomenally brilliant mm. and the amount of people were just like, I just think it was overly complicated and I don't get it. And we seem to have seen that again with Tenant or Tenet. Um, that seems to have had the same effect. 
mm-hmm. where it's polarized people in that that way. And yeah, you know, the thing is, and we know this, occasionally something comes along and it does what has been done many times before psychically and it picks up a new generation of people who have not been through that who have not been exposed to that sometimes it picks up people that never caught it when it came around the first time and i try to be as accommodating and as accepting of that you know if you if you want to quote anything on my website it's that whole thing i don't care if it's tarantino or twilight I like to see the good in everything. And that's absolutely true. I am the guy who is for, for all the exploitation films I love. I will be the guy that argues the virtues of Twilight at a party because you cannot ignore unveiling a billion dollar industry of young adult females who wanted to see that and were unserved. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you were talking about um, imitation so like this um, Knives Out movie, which I'm sure you'll watch tonight after we get off the call. Uh, <laughs> no, you, you know you've got a business meeting with, uh, you're having I drinks with, with Guy yeah. Ritchie and he's going to hire you to write his next screenplay. I do, I have a production, I have a production meeting right after this, yeah. Well, hope, hopefully over some good, um, I don't know, what's a, what's a good British cocktail? I don't know. I'm, well, I'm teetotal these days. Um, I haven't drunk for, for quite a few years, but my uh, my my tipple of choice back in the day was Kahlua. I just loved Kahlua. You know, any coffee liqueur was just delightful to me. Well, that's good that you're, you're going to be the, the sober one in a business meeting. <laughs> Always to your advantage. <laughs> uh, pretty hard on that one, yeah. So... You you wrapped up this movie called Break Even, which I believe is coming out in December. December the first, um, it, it launches in North America, so you know America and Canada, and it's it's just going to be available everywhere on every platform. You know Amazon. We we managed to get into Walmart, which was really really huge, like mm-hmm. to, to get in there, and also Best Buy, but also most most of the the video on demand platforms. You know, I am going to say right now that. Break Even is not an exploitation movie. Um, it has some elements and some suggestion of where I want to go, um, but it is it is there to punch above its weight. That's what it's there to do. Well, I'm going to have you talk about your journey of how you got this produced. But first of all, I just have to say, this movie has you know Steve Gutenberg in it and other recognizable you know Hollywood stars. I mean this is this is real, and I hate to say it, but yeah, having recognizable stars makes it even more real. And you flew out to California and you know mm-hmm. got to be on set. So I just want to know you know how this came about and and what it felt like when you you know touched down in L.A. and you know walked on to the set the first day. You know, it was such an incredible experience, almost dreamlike experience where there was there was nothing bad and there was nothing horrific at all. And so many people on screenwriting forums say it only gets harder when you start writing professionally. And I found it to be the complete opposite of that. I was discovered off the back of my blogging. I feel that blogging is the online version of networking. And it was a, a director called Shane Stanley. Shane Stanley was the executive producer of the Gridiron Gang, you know, which was a global box office number one. So he's he's been there and he's done everything. He's won Emmys, and he's he basically, you know, from a he was a child actor. He's he's just he's never known anything else but the movie industry. And his his dad was in it before him. 
And, um, you know, Shane is one of those people who's been around long enough that if he sees just a glimmer of something, he will he will pull at that thread. And, and, and he saw some of my blogs, liked what I was saying. And my blogs were, it was stuff like, let's forget about Hollywood. It sucks. And let's stop trying to break into this one place. It was ironic in this regard. He liked what I had to say. He went to my website. He saw a script on there called For Your Dreams, which is a good old, good old fashioned style exploitation movie set in modern times. A couple of girls on the lam race into Vegas, you know, lots of car chases and shootouts. Uh, and he loved this script, but, you know, he was not in a position to make it. So he came to me and he played it very well. He sent me his book first, which talks about his process. I loved the book. He was just the kind of person I wanted to work with. And he'd already laid the grounds and we had a Skype conversation. And he said, look, you know, I've been showing this script of yours for your dreams around. I really want to make it, but there's there's elements of it. It's a dirt movie and dirt movies. I can't convince people that dirt movies sell. It needs to be glammed up. It needs water. It needs sexy cities. It needs money, things like that. And he mm -hmm. said, well, are you open to changes? And I said, dude, I'm going to write you a new script. And I, and I, you don't, I don't, I don't even want a contract. I just, I just, I like you. I want an opportunity. I'm going to write you a new script, sit back and watch. And I did week after week. I hit, I hit him, you know, I, I think it's about six weeks, which is quite slow for me these days, but it's about six weeks. I got him a full draft on his birthday. He loved it. We made some minor tweaks. There was no, you know, excessive notes. And this was an issue. And that was an issue. And development soup and all these horror stories people talk about. And we got coverage on it to reassure investors that were pitching to that it was worth doing. And I was terrified of getting coverage. But it was really, really complimentary. Apart from the fact they said, you know, you, you need you need $25 million to make this. Um, <laughs> but, <clears throat> which we get a lot. We do get a lot. Um, but yeah, we, 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 that was sort of June, July. Um, I got to learn a lot about, um, at attachments and pitching and we, we attached Tassie Tellers. He's just, just, just so perfect. So perfect for playing the lead in this. Um, you know, who, who we, we got pointed to because people were saying the hundred was, was featuring some really exciting female actors. And yeah, we got green light, um, in, it was December. It was about a week before Christmas or a few days before Christmas in 2018. And it was just incredible. It was like, oh, you know, this is, we're actually making a movie and these people have attached to this movie and, you know, Steve Gutenberg's going to be in it. And I had to write for Steve Gutenberg. And that was really weird, you know, to have to get up in the morning and do that one day. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we 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 moved fast and then in in the february of 2019 i think it was it was maybe the march mid-march i i got to fly out there. that was one of the caveats was was shane said you are coming out to watch this movie get made because that's the fun bit and yeah I, I that moment when the wheels of that massive a380 hit the asphalt in la and it's it's night time and it's all the lights. And the weird thing about in a plane is like, it's almost like the second you land and you open the doors, you can smell where you are, you can feel where you are. And it was like, I'm here, I've arrived. Like, I never wanted to go to LA until I was making a movie. I didn't want to be that guy who shows up 
and hopes to something will happen. I want to be that guy who gets there and makes a movie off off the bat. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I got involved in everything, absolutely everything. I just I got to just. You know, if I wanted to help load the grip truck, I was loading the grip truck. If we were shopping for craft services, we were shopping for craft services. We were jump-starting the hero boat, speedboat that we'd bought, fair warning. We were repairing the cars. It was just, I, I really got to get my hands dirty and be part of what was a really kind and fun um, kind of ragtag production. It was a real run-and-gun um, 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 kind of piece of filmmaking. So you got a crash course in production. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why now I'm, you know, an owner-producer on a new project with a production company. I couldn't have got gotten there if I hadn't had that experience. You know, to tell all the screenwriters on Script Revolution, now that you've gone through that and seeing the nuts and bolts of getting your script made... What would you tell these people now? I mean, what's changed in your perspective now as a screenwriter? Sadly, one of one of the worst side effects of breaking in and having any kind of success is is you become more and more distanced from screenwriters because the screenwriting communities are not based in reality because the, almost all of the people that are involved in the conversation have zero experience. They don't read the books. They're not listening to people who have made movies. They're living in this kind of very speculative world where they're kind of making up and imagining what happens. And this is worsened by the fact that you always get a kind of a few people who consider themselves the elders who have who have this really tenuous success that they don't want to explain or detail or give any credits to. They, they just they just say, oh, believe me, I know what happens. So firstly, you become very distant and it becomes increasingly difficult to to tell people the reality that you've experienced, it gets rejected. But if there's just one thing that I've learned and I try to, to make people understand is that a spec screenplay submission is a business plan. You are going into the room to somebody who takes investors' money and tries to return a profit on that money, and you're saying, I have a business proposition for you, and it is in the form of this movie and a blueprint for this movie. And I think this is where people really don't realize they can gain an advantage. And I've said to people, if you have a 90-page action thriller with a lot of production value but doesn't have a high budget, you are maximizing your odds of getting made because that's the kind of thing people are looking for. That has That is a good business proposition. You know, this is maybe at the very far end of the spectrum. I guess I'm going to get a little psychological here. Good. Is there a group of screenwriters out there who, whether or not they even write, they have so much invested in the label of screenwriter and maybe they haven't accomplished everything they want to in life, but holding on to this identity is very important because it, at least inside of their minds, they think, you know, I'm worth something if people perceive me as being a screenwriter. And so often that type of person spends very little time writing. 
It's true. One of the strangest things about screenwriters who want to break in is they will talk about being lauded in the industry and lauded by the general public and that they're going to walk the red carpet and they're going to receive this 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 huge applause at you know the the kind of Hollywood equivalent of prom which is which is the Oscars. And they think everyone's going to know their name and just think they're just the absolute bee's knees. Yet at the same time, if you said, well, name me 10 screenwriters who broke in in the last five years, they, they can't. They can, they can name writer-directors. They can write, you know, they can, they can reference writer-producer-directors. Um, but they, they, they very rarely can actually reference screenwriters themselves. And I find that quite bizarre because they think they're going to be famous as screenwriters when they themselves couldn't name, you know, couldn't name five who aren't, you know, directors as well. Well, there's a certain kind of self-destructive screenwriter that just can't help themselves from picking fights with people, being extremely sensitive to any criticism. And hopefully you've seen from now more of the production side is, besides the work, you're, you're summing this person up just to see if they're a person you want to work with, you know, separate from their writing. Just are they a sane reasonable person that I can talk to and actually make changes with. Yeah. I, you know, I think people have a perception of how a writer is supposed to behave and, and, and what a writer brings to a team. And I think that a lot of people do the act of being a writer. So they try to imitate how they think writers behave because they have no real professional experience. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm unusually lucky in my life. I, I've always been in boardrooms. I've always been talking to directors of companies. I've always been, you know, at, at that level, just by sheer fortune, nothing else. So I've always been most comfortable talking to decision makers. And the thing about decision makers is what they really, really, really want to see is they want to see someone with some kind of humility. What they don't want to see is someone who's just all bravado and image. And I do see that a lot with screenwriters. Um, this kind of this need to kind of have a brand and 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 act like they're already incredibly successful, and they seem to spend a lot of their time worrying about how they're going to insure the Ferrari that they can't afford to buy yet. And mm -hmm. screenwriting is is clearly, and you see this a lot, is clearly a get rich scheme for them. It's kind of like what's the lowest barrier to entry with the highest potential return that's going to give them the kind of social mobility they want, the image they want, the money that they want. And it's this, this illusion that if they just sit down and, and, and pen that brilliant book, you know, that they have, that everyone has that book, don't they, that novel, if they do it in the form of a screenplay, which is the easiest way to do it, then they're going to, just their genius is going to be noticed. And, you know, that's probably more so in television, but if you had to choose between a brilliant writer who's temperamental and doesn't turn things in on time, or an okay writer who has a good work ethic and you know is going to give you something producible week after week, you're probably going to pick the dependable one. I think in a, bus in a business circumstance that there's no doubt about it, it would be a bad business decision not to choose someone who, who delivers. The thing is is you don't see that you don't see you don't see very sensitive and passionate writers who are mediocre writers sensitive and passionate writers actually tend to be good writers and it tends to come with a territory what you 
also tend to see is you tend to see people who are very good at being the worker bee, but produce very mediocre results and mm -hmm. and, and tend to be quite lazy with it. What you, People who are passionate tend to be motivated. So it's all about finding someone with potential and ability and knowing how to motivate those people. You know, so they are self-confident. I think that artists should wear their hearts on their sleeve. They should take every bit of negative feedback like a knife to the back. They should feel that. I don't have any time for this tough, thick-skinned nonsense. I think that's a corporate mentality. I think you should be an artist first. But mm -hmm. if, you, if you are an artist who has embraced their voice, who is motivated, who is finding direction, holy crap, you will, you will deliver when it comes to craft. You absolutely will. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I think that modern writers miss out on, because, you know, in effect, you're all freelancers, mm -hmm. okay? You know, writing spec scripts, people who were writers for the studios in the golden age of Hollywood, say the 30s, 40s, 50s, and if you're a staff writer, it's like, no, you weren't coming up with an idea This they might say, hey, this... You know, sci-fi is hot, you know, write me a sci-fi script about a mutant bug and it needs this kind of lead and this location and you have three weeks to write it. And these are your parameters. A lot of good work came out that way. But I think it's really good for a writer to have those limitations to write around because that forces a certain type of creativity and a discipline. Oh, I, I love that. You know, I... If someone who someone when someone who can get something made comes to you and they have the bare bones of what they think can get made, that's highly motivating because it takes a lot of the stress and the fear off you. You're not coming up with the absolute business plan at its core. You are doing the execution. And if you've got the right kind of relationship with the right kind of producer, they know what you're going to do. They don't know what you're going to do with your voice. And hopefully if you're smart, you know the kind of thing they like or can, more importantly, can get made and can get mm -hmm. sold. And I love that situation. I can work so fast. I churn, I say churn, I will turn a screenplay around in as little as a few days in some circumstances wow. yeah i've done that before where I, and i i'm pulling an all-nighter of course like i'm not i'm not sleeping in that situation it's unusual i'm again lean living the lifestyle i have allows me to do that but i i will i will turn out something really fast and really passionate but they have to accept that i will always take it in the direction where my voice is based and they ha and the mistake is when people go to the wrong writers to write the wrong material well, that's what was so great about exploitation films. It's like, you know, the, the rip-off ones where, you know, Jaws is such a big hit and you see all these Jaws rip-offs. Mm. You know, you know, they're just saying, hey, we want a Jaws rip-off. It has to have these elements. And yet some of those were good, too. I mean, look at, you know, Piranha. And, and uh, yeah. some of those, you know, in spite of it, I think because of those restraints, but they said, well, we can't match the budget, but, you know, we'll up the fun fact or, you know, we'll have kooky characters to make up for our lack of special effects. I think that can happen. I, I think that, I think there is a like a food chain like that where you kind of the usually what happens is a 
kind of a, a mid-level player will do something exciting. Hollywood will jump on it straight afterwards. Then the low-budget world will come in and, and try to imitate. And then what you'll get is you'll get the spoof world will come in at the end and mock the low-budget world's attempts. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like this this kind of process, this evolution that everything goes through. But absolutely, you know, creativity doesn't exist in a vacuum. We are influenced by what we see. The movies I write now are based on the movies I grew up up with we 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 are influenced by something and inspired by it and it creates a movement absolutely and um, i'm gonna add a little aside from personal experience back in the day you know i got probably my most creative outlet through public access tv in seattle in the early 90s and i wrote and directed a weekly anthology show you know, with actors and different stories every week, kind of like, I used to say it was like Alfred Hitchcock presents or Twilight Zone. Yes. But what I forgot to add, you know, as if it was written and directed by John Waters. <laughs> but I self-created that deadline, like that weekly thing I had to write, direct, edit, hand into the station every week, you know, a new tape that they could play that Friday night you know, a one-week schedule, mostly shooting on the weekend while working a full-time job. But, you know, in all the years since then, I've tried to describe that to people because in that arena, there were, you know, I'd go to meetings there at the studio and, oh, I want to make a 10-minute short, but I can't get a crew together. I can't, you know, get the camera equipment or actors. And, you know, a year later, they're still whining about the same thing. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness, in the time you've been whining and not doing anything, you know, I've churned out 30 episodes of this mm-hmm. and, you know, used, you know, all my spare time, probably used up all my goodwill with everyone I knew asking for favors and to act in this and, you know, use their house for a location. But, you know, you learn that kind of hustle mentality when everything is on you. And I just wish I could transplant that into other people's heads to kind of realize, you know what, if an outside force isn't giving you a deadline, make mm-hmm. one up for yourself because I learned very quickly, I would not have had that output. I would not have written a 30 minute script every week unless I had this, you know, figurative gun to my head. Like I have mm-hmm. to finish this or else I won't get my slot at the TV station anymore. I think that's that's really wise. And I think people undervalue the importance of nurturing their motivation. Um, you have to be in this for a marathon. You have to give it at least 10 years to try and break in. And you have to appreciate that um, you need to keep writing. You need to be motivated by writing. And you may need to make some very selfish and self-indulgent decisions to keep yourself writing. Um, sometimes taking the path of least resistance. Writing, the easier your writing, the better your writing is probably going to be. Um, you also most likely are going to get motivated by, like you say, by deadlines and by money and by opportunities and you have to think well how can i make that happen i you know i i wrote features in until about probably about 2014 maybe maybe not even as long as that and gave up writing features i was like well this is pointless and painful i'm gonna go write shorts so i wrote short after short and i'd give myself a week to write one which seems such a you know such a long amount of time to write a short now but I was learning and I and that caused me to keep flexing these story writing muscles. And there's an interesting interview with Seth Rogen where he talks about how 
I can't remember who told him to do this, but someone said, and it was a, a like a, a major showrunner. He said, "I want you to write a hundred one-page synopsises." Um, That's a lot. I think it was something like that. And it doesn't matter how bad they are. And it doesn't matter how necessarily incomplete and how poorly they're done. I just want you to attempt to do it. And and he said, like, he had a lot of good ideas, a lot of bad ideas, but it trained him in his mind. It trained that muscle within his brain to to be able to do that, to just keep coming up. And it also, what it made him do, and this is the important thing, is he became less and less precious about the stories that he had come up with. And that's important. Mm-hmm. Is if, if you are not very skilled at something and poorly motivated to do it, you will do it, it will take you too long, and you will be too precious about it. And you will fear doing it again. And working screenwriters, they will churn, you know, we'll say they, we, will, will churn out a synopsis in, a, in, in an hour mm-hmm. if they need to. I've done that before. I've I've woken up in the morning, done a synopsis in an hour, sent it to a producer. That producer sent it to a manager, and that manager has phoned up and said, "I will write you a six-figure check to make this movie for my client tomorrow." Like that's that's the speed that some people are operating at. People need to know that if it takes you a week to write a synopsis and it takes you six months to write a a, a mediocre script because you don't kind of don't want to do it that's not a good place to be you have to motivate yourself and i agree setting deadlines is a good way to do it well what's a real drawback from being a screenwriter say as opposed to being a short story writer you in the same amount of time it takes to write a good script you could have you know written a dozen short stories and year after year from that what emerges the more you write is your style and if someone is putting all their eggs in the basket of their first screenplay, they do not have that luxury of seeing their work over, you know, half a dozen screenplays or a dozen screenplays. And it sounds kind of trite, but, you know, being an artist is all about finding your unique voice. And even if you're inspired by other things, you know, what is special that you're bringing to your stories and just also it's the psychology of you know what are you working out in your brain by writing these stories what parts of your subconscious are coming out and i think we we can't see that until we've written a small body of work um you know the the odd thing is is the first one or two screenplays will actually contain it um, may, mainly if it's someone who's come into it later in life. The first two screenplays will, will, will actually contain the voice and what that person wants to write because it comes from a completely um, new and naive viewpoint of the industry, someone who's not been affected, providing that person hasn't done the, 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 made the big, big mistake of reading about the industry first, mm-hmm. they, they will go for it. It will just be, it will be badly executed in terms of craft. What where the real where it really falls apart is when that person tries to go to market the screenplay or tries to get feedback on it or tries to get validation, and then the fear comes in. All the other people who are failing, who are failing, you know, just who 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 are just consumed by their own fear and preconceptions will come along and they'll say, "Oh well, don't do this and don't do that, and there's these rules and focus on these superficial elements and watch out for this and I'm doing that." And what actually happens is the person ends up 
going away from their voice. They become ashamed of their voice. They, 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 they're embarrassed by it. They don't want to admit to it. And they start writing really mediocre stuff that they think is highly commercial to, and to, to impress a very introspective um, audience, which is other screenwriters, who are the last people you want to impress are other screenwriters. Because mm-hmm. 99% of the ones you meet are completely deluded and, and failing, sadly. You, what mm-hmm. you want to impress is your audience. Guess what impresses your audience? Your voice. So mm-hmm. I find that a lot of people rediscover it. And the best way to rediscover your voice is to give up, which I did two or three times. Um, I, I really heavily gave up in about 2015, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quit. I, and the funny thing is you can't quit. No one can quit. And then I watched um, Hateful Eight. And I was like... Holy shit! This this is a, this is a, this is a play. This is just this is just a play, with some people in a room, and it's like, I am allowed to do this. I'm allowed to do what this person's doing. I can't resist it. And for the first time ever, I sat down and I wrote something which was akin to what I first started with, which was really getting to the crux of what I felt passionate about writing. And that's when I really doubled down on my voice and owned it. And guess what? Things started happening. Nice. And and that's encouraging what you say that in the first script or two, you can already have your voice. You know, I never really looked at it that way. I've always kind of seen it as... You know, you're out there to create a body of work. And, you know, that doesn't mean you can't evolve, I'm sure, you know. You don't want to be the exact same writer you were 20 years down the line either. But I think there's just also, when you just think of, there's so many writers and there's a lot of good ones. But what makes you unique? What's the one thing that only you can bring to the marketplace? Well, that's isn't that's it, isn't it? And, and what I... What I did in my case is, you know, I found out after writing my first script that I was obsessive about the female characters in it. And and they they just they just took over everything else. And they were these kind of gritty female characters, very strong willed and um and, and you know, I could have easily become awkward and embarrassed about that. You know, I, I if someone was in the same position now, it would be harder because there's quite a strong movement against men writing women. And there's quite, you know, quite strong movement against the male gaze. But in my cases, you know, as I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to own, you know, what might be a flaw. I'm going to own what might be a a failure on my part. I'm going to own the obsession and I'm going to own the gaze that I have because the gaze that I have is, is still valid, even if it's completely wrong. And it's and it's reductive and it's narrow-minded. It's still valid. This is the thing that we have to accept about the art: is everyone's gaze means something, even if we even if it's bad and we learn what's bad about it. It's still valid. And it was all, for me. It was all about doing that and and doubling down and just saying, you know what? This is this is who I am and what I do. And don't come to me for the next Bond movie, right? Come to me for the next Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> it's as simple as that. You know, I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to be puritanical about myself. And I see a lot of people in there kind of puritanical about themselves. Well, what are the movies with strong female leads that most influenced you? 
you know, I grew up with. I mean, I mean, I hate to say, but the, the, a lot of the, the very cliche ones that people always reference, and that was things like, you know, Terminator Two and and Alien and Aliens. So you know, it was it was it was Ripley and people like that. But you know, it was also you know, in in the Road Warrior, you got the the Warrior Woman in that, who I thought was presented really well, because they didn't cram a love story into that or make her weak or anything like that. You know, but, you know, I grew up on films like Crazy, you know, um, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, you know, where... where oh, Mary... You know what? I saw that in the theater when it first came out. Very cool. Very cool. Um, you know... Just so um... I can age myself, but please go on. <laughs> it does, that does tell me a lot. And, you know, and, and Mary in that is just wild. She's, she's wilder. Wasn't that... Susan George from Straw Dogs. I, I, lo I love Susan George, and, and <laughs> you know I love the way what she was doing back then. And in that in that in that movie, you have these two guys who are supposed to be the wild ones, who were the you know the NASCAR racers turned um, bank heist, uh, you know criminals, end up you know with this girl who's who's more dangerous than they are and more reckless than they are. And I think that that's very again very life affirming because I think a lot of a lot of teenage men or your young adult men find that in their lives that they're looking for rebellion and they're looking for excess and when they get tied up with a with a with a, a woman in the same position things kind of go to 11. Mm -hmm. what did you think of kill bill i i enjoyed kill bill you know i think that um for me kill bill is where tarantino went in 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 a, in a certain direction which was away from where I preferred him to be. I, I, I often fascinate myself with the idea of what if Tarantino had been a small-time director, what would he have made? So if you come to me and you talk about great Tarantino films, you know, I'm going to talk about Death Proof. I'm going to say Death Proof is a damn good castploitation movie and, mm -hmm. and just absolutely phenomenal in what he did for, you know, for the stunts in that. If you come to me and you talk about Kill Bill, it's like, yeah, I really appreciate it. There's a lot I love about it. I think... My favorite scene in Kill Bill, and it might be in the second one, is where B is in a hotel room and a like a, a, a one. Of, I think it's probably a member of the Crazy Eighty Eight in, in some regard comes in. She she shotguns her way through the door, and she has this face off with 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 B, and realizes that she's pregnant. And she decides not to kill her and she leaves. And as she leaves, she shouts back, congratulations. And to me, that is good writing of female characters because there's something incredibly feminine about telling her congratulations in that situation. There's something really kind of real about that. To say it's comedic, it feels ridiculous, but that to me is, is is what Tarantino is really good at doing. Like you get these male writers who I think write women really well. Tarantino is one. James Cameron is another one. You know, one thing I love about the UK are are the detective series and the the mystery and the crime series. You guys do that better than anyone. And you know, and I, what I like too is you know. When we look at that, we just lump it together, but it's very regional. You know, it's not just London, but, you know, it's the small towns. And it's kind of a fun way to discover, you know, the English countryside through these series and to go up, you know, to Wales or, you know, Scotland mm. or Ireland. And there's this very specific regional differences in different series. And, 
it's just all fascinating. But my favorite, and it, this must be going on what started 30 years ago, with a you know one of the best strong female leads of all time, was Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think and that really you know put it out there. You know, a woman in a man's world. And it did it in such a, a good way where there were no easy answers and there was a lot of heartache, you know, and every victory, you know, she made every time she'd solve, you know, the murder by the end, there was always something to dampen her victory or put her down or not honor her enough because she was a woman. So I think if you, you're thinking of complex female leads, you know, you, you could do worse than have something like that as a role model. Well, this is the issue, and this is the problem we have right now. You know, I'm a big supporter of multifaceted, realistic female characters, and Break Even is really good for that because a lot of the characters who would typically be male are female, and it's it's, it's doing it's doing the unusual ones, um, and and presenting a multifaceted, complete character. And this is the issue because what we have now is we have a real problem with strong female characters just basically just being violent because mm -hmm. they have trauma and they, and I've seen this over and over again, where they have a female character who zombie walks around, they walk into misogyny and then they have these secret martial arts skills that come out and they, they mm -hmm. kick their ass and, and emasculate the misogynistic man and carry on and zombie walk into the next thing. And I, yeah. I think that's doing it a disservice. I think that, you know, if you, the, 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 what, what I love about, about women and their approach to the world is if there's a thread, they will pull at that thread. And I think that male male action heroes work well because men are really good either by genetics or by nurturing. I don't know if, if, which one it is. Uh, just getting on with the job and not questioning it. And that makes a good Rambo, you know. That, that, that makes mm -hmm. a good Terminator. But what's great about female characters, and it's kind of shown in a juxtaposition, juxtaposed, juxtaposed way in Terminator, the way that um, Linda Hamilton's character, you know, it's, she's the one that talks about life. She's the one that talks about whether or not they're doing the right thing and whether or mm -hmm. not man is born to fight. And I love that. And I, and I love writing that. I love, I love the opportunity to do it for a female character because we men don't have and i don't mean this in in a demeaning way is we don't have that neurotic nature or we're not a, not as permitted to show it or to 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 indulge in it whereas a typical female character will just pull at that thread mm -hmm. well speaking of james cameron and arnold schwarzenegger one of, not only one of my all-time favorite action films but just films in general is true lies really made and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, the female lead with Arnold. And what I liked about her character is she didn't start out superhuman. She was just, uh, um, you know, a mainstream wife, mother, you know, worker on the job. You know, she didn't have a job that gave her special fighting skills or spy no. skills. And it was charming to see like any of us thrown into this extreme situation without any training how we had to kind of force ourselves to be better than we were to rise up to that challenge. And I, and I like that because when we see all these, you know, super women who suddenly, you know, are, you know, these master martial artists where it's like, wait a minute, you know, most women, it's like you, a woman doesn't have to emulate a man to be powerful. 
you know, I think this allowed her to say, no, what would a real woman do? Well, use her wits or, you know, or, you know, if that didn't work, you know, just do something spontaneous. And I thought that did such a good job of that without her hating her husband or, you know, she didn't throw everything out just to survive. She still tried to keep her humanity with her. Definitely, definitely. And I, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because, you know, horror has always been like this, this really interesting area for, for female leads. Um, it, you know, basically like horror has been like this, 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 this little safe house where women have had an opportunity to lead a movie. And it's because we will accept the premise of, of a woman being chased you know, of a woman being stalked and having to eventually fight for her life. And Lifetime have really capitalized on this with their with their programming, you know, 90% female viewership. And the majority of, of that programming is is the same kind of concept of as of, 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 of a woman kind of suspects that some something around her isn't right, and that proves to be true. And I always mm -hmm. think that like horror really gave a lot of opportunity in that area. You know, I consider alien to be a um it's, it's, a, it's a monster in the house horror film just it just mm -hmm. so happens to be set sure. in space and that's why ripley works as a lead in that um because mm -hmm. she's just is she's does she knows that something's up and that people are going to make mistakes and she's eventually forced into a a one-on-one -on -one fight with the with the monster what did you think of Silence of the Lambs and um, Jodie Foster's character, who was a trained agent, but at the same time had a very vulnerable quality. And it was, a, it was an interesting balance between the two where she wasn't afraid, you know, Jodie, the actress, wasn't afraid to show the vulnerabilities of her character. Well, that's the great thing about Silence of the Lambs is is, and I rewatched that recently, and it's way more of a commercial film than I I realized. Like it's it's not actually trying to be particularly clever. I mean, it's the execution's phenomenal. I'm not going to deny deny that. But yes, I mean, what's brilliant about Jodie Foster's character about Clarice is is Clarice is barely clinging on to 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 survive in this situation as a professional. Like she's she's really thrown in at the deep end. And she just keeps fighting through. And what and what she has underwriting all of it is this integrity and this belief that Hannibal Lecter actually has an honorable element to him. And that's what's really great. And it's one of these things like, again, by choosing for her to be female, really, really lends credibility to that. That was repeated really well in Sicario, <coughs> where... Um, the lead female character in that again the writer said it had to be a woman that played it because of the integrity because because of of, of fighting for something that's that's really deep and principled and we don't tend to see that in men and i mean maybe we've had a lot of poor male role models out there i don't know but we believe it when it comes from clarice we believe that um, that she sees she sees a humanity where others don't despite the fact that she's you know, just completely out of her depth in terms of her involvement with the investigation. Well, we're going to wrap up here soon. Um, before we do, I uh, want everyone to make sure they know where to find you, Script Revolution, and just, you know, all the good stuff about uh, break even. So 
plug away. Yeah, I, well, obviously, cjwally.com, um, scriptrevolution.com will take to script revolution. Um, there is um, breakevenmovie.com. Um, where you can find all the social media for that i'm i kind of quit social media recently i don't post on there as much as i used to but um there's a script revolution forums where i'm, I'm quite proactive on there um, and people can always reach out to me you know, cj at cjwally.com and, and and converse with me in private if, if they want to or anything like that um and and, and you know get get involved i do i do talk to people i like to talk to people it's hard during covid to to keep to keep it up um but um yeah i love talking craft just don't just don't ask me to read your script <laughs> <laughs> you know i saw some articles you wrote on storius magazine oh yes the storius picked up uh, a medium article of mine didn't they they picked up um hollywood or bust why we all need to stop um california dreaming yeah, so you yeah. kind of pop up here and there on Stage 32, blog. some blog posts, and even on I your blog. own website. So mm -hmm. I I liked those. I actually read a whole bunch of those. So you actually, you, you have a really good voice when you're talking about writing or, you know, this industry. Mm. Oh, you, yeah, thank the, you for that. I appreciate that. I, I tell the truth, and I, I tell people how, you know, how things, it's crazy, you know, because I think the truth is, is, is seen as almost toxic. It's, it's bizarre. We live in an upside down world online sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I tell people absolute bare, you know, just complete transparency, exactly what I think works and what people need to do and what's worked for me. I just completely, you know, I, I tell it as it is. And I do have, you know, recipes for success, which sounds a little bit clickbaity, but, you know, and plans to, to, to really have a good year writing and things like that. I, I care a lot about, I care a lot about the industry, the, in the, in the industry surviving. And the key to that is finding good writers. Well, I normally wrap up with three final questions, but since I know you got this hot business date, <laughs> The way you're going to make a million dollar movie deal. I, I don't want you to be late, but uh, I'm going to break it down to two. And the first mm. one is as writers, you know, we always have the movies that inspired us. And when you're feeling down or dejected or you want to throw in the towel, what's the one guaranteed movie that you can watch that reminds you why you wanted to be a screenwriter and why you love movies so much? Um, I think I'd go back and I'd watch um, Mad Max to the Road Warrior um, because I watched that so much when I was younger and it has car exploitation in which I love. But also I never realized like what a really quite profound movie that was about duty and about sacrifice and about, you know, humanity and the future for our children. Um, and, and yeah, it's just it's got everything in there for me personally. Good answer. I like that movie too. Mm. So final question. So you've got lots of, you know, movies or uh, scripts out there. Cause you, you even post your stuff on script revolution, which is so cool. Mm -hmm. But what has been the hot idea that that's just fired you up, whether or not you fleshed it out, you jotted it on a, you know, a little scrap of paper, you wrote a synopsis What's the hot story that's inspiring you right now? 
Um, it's space, and I never thought I'd want to go into space as a as a writer. But um, I really got thinking about space on a smaller scale. If that doesn't sound like an oxymoron, and the idea of what what's going what's space going to be like when we have a trucker culture within our own solar system. Like what's space going to be like when, you know, where are the diners and the truck stops and the, the, the kind of CD Vegas style casino joints going to be on the road when you're traveling for months at a time, hauling, you know, raw materials from, from a planet back to, you know, maybe a space station for processing. So I've got this, this project in, and I call it solar one niner. Um, as, as a working title and it's all about a um it, it's all about a a tug operator it's a it's it's a it's a woman who owns you know this massive space tug and they basically go out and they and they they rescue you know they're like they're like the tow truck operators of space you know broken down spaceships and things like that and it's and it's about them um having to go to a, a major accident that's happened in the orbit of jupiter um, which actually gets a little bit supernatural. It gets a little bit interesting, a bit like the abyss, and they end up in, in basically in a right mess trying to recover a, um, a destroyed um, um, space lab. Um, so, yeah, that, that's something I really want to toy with. I like the idea of realistic space exploration. Mm-hmm. Okay, and last one, bonus question. So if I ever go to Stoke-on-Trent, who serves the best fish and chips? Oh, you would you would go to Mother Town Fish and Chips in Burslem, which is a old bank which has been converted into a fish and chip shop where you can sit and eat inside, which is a little bit rare these days. And what's really cool is they use the old bank vault as a um, as, as a storage area. Um, if you're really looking, and they do gluten-free fish and chips as well, which is great if you know someone with celiac disease. Um, and if you if you ask really nicely, they might even do battered chips, which is a bit of a um, West Midlands legacy, which they they're willing to indulge in at your pleasure. And I can assume I can assure you, you've never had anything better than that. And someone asked me to ask you, in your thickest English accent, to say, "You bloody wanker." You absolute bloody wanker. <laughs> See, Americans love to hear British people say that to us. You uh, bloody I'm gonna, wanker. I'm going to make sure I say it to everyone next time I land in L.A. <laughs> wanker. It, wanker. I actually, on set, there's a guy who learned the word dickhead, and he would call me dickhead on set, and I would call him bellend back, and that's how we, we got on with our, uh, each other. It was the, Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, next podcast interview, we'll just spend the whole time learning uh, British, obscene British slang. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. That would that, that could be an even longer one than this, but I'd, <laughs> I'd love to come back and catch up with you more. I've really enjoyed this discussion. Well, his name is CJ Wally. His movie coming out December 1st is Break Even. You can find him on Script Revolution at cjwally.com. I thank you, and I thank you for what you're doing to the screenwriting community at large. I really appreciate that. Kelly, this has been an absolute pleasure. It really has. Mm -hmm.